Okay. Good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. To enable public participation, SFGov TV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live and we will receive public comment for discussion and action items on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. We will take public comment from persons in City Hall first and then open up the remote access lines. For those persons calling in to submit their testimony, you need to call 415-655-0001 and enter access code 2664-559-5440 and enter pound twice. To comment, you must enter star three to raise your hand and once you've raised your hand, you will hear a prompt stating that you have raised your hand to ask a question. Please wait to speak until the host calls on you. When you hear that you are unmuted, that is your indication to begin speaking. For those joining via WebEx, uh, you may log in via the link found on today's agenda and enter password CPC 2023, and you need to use the raised hand icon to ask a question. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, and please mute the volume on your television or computer. For those persons attending in City Hall, we ask that you line up on the screen side of the room or to your right. Please speak clearly and slowly, and if you care to, state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we all silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. <clears throat> and at this time, I will take roll. Commission President Tanner. Here. Commissioner Braun. Here. Commissioner Diamond. Here. Commissioner Imperial. Here. Commissioner Koppel. Here. And Commissioner Ruiz. Here. We expect Commission Vice President Moore to be absent today. Commissioners, first on your agenda is consideration of items proposed for continuance. Item one, case number 2022-006831-DRM. At 619 Marina Boulevard, discretionary review is proposed for continuance to January 25th, 2024. Item two, case number 2023-001507-OFA. At 838 Market Street, office allocation is proposed for indefinite continuance. Item three, case number 2022 0 1981 DRP-02 at 1270 Pacific Avenue. A discretionary review has been withdrawn, as was <coughs> item four for case number 2022-001026 DRP at 2266 43rd Avenue. Discretionary review also withdrawn. I have no other items proposed for continuance, so shall we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on any of these items proposed to be continued. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed and your continuance calendar is now before you. Any motions on the continuance calendar? Commissioner Braun? Move to continue items one through four. Second. Thank you, Commissioners, on that motion to continue items as proposed. Do we need public comment on the continuance? You did, okay, okay. Um, on that motion to continue items as proposed, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. And places you on your consent calendar. All matters listed here under constituted consent calendar are considered to be routine by the Commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote. There will be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the commission, the public, or staff so requests, in which event the matter shall be removed 
from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item at this or a future hearing. Item 5, case number 2023-005339, CUA at 690 Sacramento Street, conditional use authorization. Item 6, case number 2023-003078, CUA at 16 Jesse Street, number 306, conditional use authorization. Item 7, case number 2019-006995, DRP. At 1128 Lake Street, discretionary review. Item 8, case number 2023-008013, CUA 2060 Polk Street, a conditional use authorization. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to request that any of these items be removed from consent and considered under the regular calendar. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star 3. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment on your consent calendar is closed and it is now before you. Thank you. Are there any motions on the consent calendar? Commissioner Imperial? Move to approve all items. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion to approve uh, items under your consent calendar and to take discretionary review and approve with modifications. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. Placing us under commission matters item nine, the land acknowledgement. Commissioner Imperial is gonna share our land acknowledgement today. <clears throat> the Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all the peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respect by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatish Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Thank you. Item 10, consideration of adoption draft minutes for October 26th, November 2nd, November 9th, 2023. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and your minutes are before you. Any comments, questions, or motions on the minutes? Commissioner Imperial. Move to adopt all the minutes. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to adopt your minutes, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, six to zero. Item 11, Commission comments and questions. Just want to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Hope you had a good holiday. Glad to see everyone back. And so, of course, we're missing Commissioner Moore today. Um, but beyond that, I don't have any comments or questions. But if any other commissioners do, all right. Okay. That's it. Uh, moving right along, Commissioners. Item 12, your 2024 hearing schedule. So, um, when it was issued, I probably should have taken a slightly closer look at it. Um, there are 12 proposed cancellations, uh, but in retrospect, um, there's a bit of a large gap between the first cancellation at the beginning of the year and your second at the end of May for the fifth Thursday. December 19th is sort of may not be as close to December 25th as one might think. Um, 
and Rosh Hashanah lands on October 3rd, and I know you have traditionally taken that into consideration. I don't know if you want to reinstate Halloween on October 31st. might prove to be an interesting hearing. Um, and then I would, I mean, it's proposed, as you did last year for the first time, to take the entire month of August, the, some, the same way that um, the Board of Supervisors do. This year there are five Thursdays in August. Um, July 4th is on July 4th, and it's canceled. Um, we would, or I would also request that you consider uh, canceling January 2nd, 2025, just so we know in advance, um, the same way that um, we're asking you to cancel January 4th this year. Um, January 4th was, suggest was a suggestion, actually, from Commission Vice President Moore, um, because there are five Thursdays in February for a leap year next year, that to reinstate the fifth Thursday in February, given that it's so close to the beginning of the year and your holiday break. So just things to consider, um, and we should probably take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their 2024 hearing schedule. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, commissioners, public comment on your hearing schedule is closed and it is now before you. Great, thank you for putting this together and um, I did get to speak with Vice President Moore uh, before she left about the proposal around the having it, the five hearings in February, which seemed to be reasonable to me, but open to what folks think. If you saw any other uh, holidays that maybe you're planning to take or that we maybe have traditionally taken that where the, the day falls closer, um, certainly open to thoughts regarding that. Mr. Diamond? Um, I, I would request that we not meet on Rosh Hashanah, so I think October 3rd should be canceled. And I say, I really appreciated having all of August off this year and would suggest we do it again. Likewise. Um, so would you want to then reinstate the 31st of October and then take off the 3rd of October? It seems reasonable to me. Commissioner Braun? Uh, my one thought about August is maybe if people do want to take the five, all five of those hearings off, maybe we restore August 1st and then have... I think it's, I think the Thursday is September 5th, so that, um, because that's Labor Day weekend before September 5th, mm. planning department staff might, you know, especially coming back from that break, um, might be good to just um, not come back until after. Yeah, to just take the Labor, Labor Day, Day holiday as yeah. well. I think that seems fair. It still preserves the five weeks. It's all in, not in one month, um, but I think the continuous kind of break kind of is preserved. Commissioner Koppel? Uh, agreeing with all of that and then suggesting a hearing off in March. I'd no, yeah, no. there's a long stretch of hearings between um, January 11th and your first cancellation for a fifth Thursday and May 30th. Um, Easter this year falls on March 31st. You might want to throw in April 4th as sort of a in between those dates. Um, Orthodox Easter, for some reason, isn't until May 5th. It's very... Very late. They're usually... Very late. They're usually, like, one week apart. But... Um, 
So, yeah. and then and then again, com commissioners. I mean, because of the number of cancellations you're considering, I would suggest reinstating December nineteenth. Commissioner Koppel, did you have a date in March, or did you was the April fourth idea amenable, or meeting that idea? Or March twenty eighth, March twenty eighth, or April fourth. I just prefer to kind of go more in the middle with the twenty eighth. Commissioner Brown, did you have your hand up again? Um, so I'm just going to read back what I've uh, the suggestions I've heard so far. We would have October 30, oh, sorry, October 3rd off as a cancellation. We would reinstate October 31st. We would have March 28th as a cancellation, and we would reinstate August 1st, but then have a cancellation on September 5th. Um, I think I saw some nodding to to forecasting that. Uh, January, what is it, January 2nd? January 2nd, 2024 would be canceled. I think that is reasonable. Um, would also be a cancellation. And then there was a question that no one's commented on so far that um, Jonas raised, which about December 19th of next year, if we, I mean, I would say we're probably agreeing to continue that as a cancellation unless anybody wants to reinstate that date. Commissioner Diamond? Um, I had assumed we were taking August off, so I will not be available on August 1st. Okay. Um, so if you want to meet, it's fine, but I won't be here. <laughs> okay. I think it makes sense to... T I like having the Labor Day kind of stretch personally, but I don't know. Six, one and a half dozen, either. Okay. Any other comments or proposals? Do we need a motion to adopt the calendar? We do. And did you cap you captured everything that I stated? I think so. Okay. Any motions to approve or need to read it back again? So moved. Commissioner Koppel. Sorry. Sorry, cut. Commissioner Diamond. What did we do about December 19th? I was assuming that by no one's commenting on it that we wanted to continue it as a cancellation. So I just okay. wanted to, and then no one commented, so I assume that was. Yeah, that's how I understood it. <laughs> okay. All right, Commissioner Koppel made a motion to uh, adopt the calendar. Is there a second? Second. Thank you, Commissioners. On that motion to adopt your 2024 hearing schedule, and let me read back how I understand it. We're canceling January 4th. We are canceling March 28th for the Easter holiday. Uh, May 30th as the fifth Thursday of that month. July 4th uh, for the holiday. We are keeping August 1st and adding September 5th as a cancellation with the other August dates. We are canceling October 3rd for the holiday and reinstating October 31st as the fifth Thursday, canceling November 28th and canceling December 19th, the 26th, as well as January 2nd, 2025. On that motion, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 6 to 0. Commissioners, that will place us under Department Matters, Item 13, Director's Announcements. Item 14, Review of Past Events of the Board of Supervisors. There is no report from the Board of Appeals, and the Historic Preservation Commission did not meet yesterday. 
Uh, good afternoon, Commissioner Zarin, Star Manager of Legislative Affairs. Uh, this week, the Land Use Committee took up uh, two items related to the Wilmona Street and 45th Avenue Cultural District, also known as the Irish Cultural Center. The first item was the ordinance establishing the SUD, and the second was an amendment to the local coastal program to incorporate the SUD. The two items were called together. Um, the SUD was continued uh, from October 30th hearing uh, because of issues related to the Coastal Commission review. This week, planning staff gave a thorough presentation on the proposed SUD and um, the proposed new building. There were about a dozen or so commenters, um, about half spoke in favor and half were opposed. Um, there were some comments of support uh, from Chair Melgar um, about the pro proposal as well. And then the two items were um, forwarded to the full board with a positive recommendation as a committee report. Next, the committee considered the mayor's ordinance titled Citywide Expansion of Allowable Commercial Restaurant and Retail Uses. Um, this was first heard at committee on October 30th and continued to this week. Um, during the committee hearing, Director Tang gave a summary of the amendments in front of, uh, uh, to the committee, um, which generally included um, to amend the LCU exemptions to allow LCCUs, limited corner commercial uses, in residential districts, but retain existing code for non-conforming LCUs. For the RH and RM zoning control tables to not permit the conversion of residential unit or UDU to an LCU, LCCU unless the space is a garage um, or storage space on the basement or first floor. Clarifying formula retail is not permitted in the LCCUs and um, not permitting walk-up facilities in RH, RM, and R2 districts. Uh, also, amending the priority processing program to prohibit all formula retail from the program, not just formula retail uses with less than 20 establishments. And then there's some other clerical fixes that were added. Supervisor Peskin thanked Director Tang for the collaboration um, on this ordinance. He also uh, proposed some minor cleanup amendments of his own. Um, Supervisor Preston commended Director Tang on the outreach completed to date. He also requested that additional outreach be conducted with the J Japantown neighborhood um, as the forthcoming duplicated file moves forward. Uh, there were two public commenters uh, with one requesting further clarification and one speaking in support. The committee then uh, took the amendments presented by uh, Director Tang and Supervisor Peskin and forwarded the um, item to the full board with a positive recommendation as a committee report. The file was also duplicated as, amendment, as amended and then um, amended again to include um, applying the exemption from termination provisions for non-conforming uses within the North Beach SUD. And then for LCCUs, permitting uses if it complies with the neighbor commercial district or special use district within, a, within one half mile of the use, or if the use is more than one half mile from the nearest NC or SUD and NC1 districts. Um, and amending the use size limitations for RH and RM districts to comply with the use size limitations of the nearest neighbor commercial district or special use district. Another amendment for within the Polk Street NCD um, would change health services so that uh, properties that do not have frontage on Hyde Street, um, it would not be permitted there. And then non-retail professional services would be conditionally permitted on properties that do not have any frontage on Polk, California, or Hyde Street. Um, and then adding a five-year uh, fee exemption for converting PDR to non-PDR uses, and then some other changes that um, limit Prop H. The last uh, amendment means that the duplicated ordinance cannot be amended um, are heard until December 18th when the three-year moratorium on the changes implemented by Prop H expire.
The committee also took up the mayor's constraints reduction ordinance this Monday. Uh, this item was continued from October 30th. Uh, this week, planning staff presented a series of amendments to the ordinance, most of which took out the carve-outs for the family housing opportunity SUD that Supervisor Melgar had added, including front and rear yard setback, open space dimensions, exposure requirements, and minimum lot size and width. Uh, the result will be that these standards will be consistent throughout the city. Also, uh, we made an amendment to remove the allowance to demolish two non-occupied non rent-controlled units within, without CU authorization. So no, now no rent-controlled units may be demolished without conditional use authorization. Uh, based on feedback from HCD, we also changed the pre-application meeting requirement for projects exempt from 317 CU requirements to, um, to a meeting that must occur prior to or within 20 days of submitting an application. Uh, finally, we amended the 311 process waiver outside of the Priority Equity Geographies SUD so that projects not adding a unit and doing a vertical addition or projects that would increase a single family home size to 3,000 square feet or more are still subject to uh, 311 no neighborhood notification. This means that any horizontal addition or a project that increases the number of units would not require 311 notification. The original uh, draft of the ordinance just did away with 311 notification altogether. Um, as you would expect, there was significant public comment, although commenters were only given one minute each, so um, that lasted for less than an hour this time. Uh, once public comment was over, the ordinance was amended to include staff's modifications. Amendments from Supervisor Mandelman were also added, which included a requirement that for a project to be exempt from 317 CU requirement, it must have been constructed after 1923. The file was then duplicated. Uh, the amended file was sent to the full board without a recommendation as a committee report, and the duplicated file was continued to the call of the chair. Um, so some, finally some progress on the constraints reduction ordinance. Uh, lastly, the committee considered Supervisor Peskin's resolution directing the city attorney and the city lobbyist to request HCD extend the housing element implementation action plan deadline and revise and correct the policy and practice review letter. Uh, this re resolution was amended and continued to December 5th. I don't have those amendments, but I will have more for you next week on that. And then at the full board this week, um, the Nonprofit Arts Educational Special Use District, sponsored by Supervisor Peskin, passed its second read. The um, Housing Production or Constraints Reduction Ordinance uh, was continued one week so that Supervisor Mandelman's amendments could be considered uh, with the full Constraints Reduction Ordinance. So you'll be hearing an ordinance today that's related to that. Um, and then the citywide expansion of allowable commercial re restaurant and retail uses sponsored by the mayor passed its first read. And that's all I have for you. Thank you. Seeing no questions, we can move on to general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to two minutes. Um, and when the number of speakers exceed the 15-minute limit, general public comment may be moved to the end of the agenda. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no members of the public in the chambers coming forward, let's go to our remote caller. Good afternoon. This is Anastasia Yovanopoulos, a member of San Francisco Tenants Union and the Rep Coalition. 
uh, I'm commenting on a letter that must have hit your inboxes, and you must want to make the public aware of this uh, regarding legislation that protects tenants from displacement. So apparently, planning staff knew that the legislation, I'm referring to uh, Mayor Breed's legislation, was out of compliance with policy number 26 and recommended actions to specifically exempt rent control from the streamlining process. But it neglected to alert, alert the commission in their report. Consequently, four commissioners voted to strip um, protections for rent control housing and uh, back the mayor's constraints reduction ordinance. Um, this was unthinkable. I, I can't believe what happened. And it caused a lot of uh, consternation at the land use committee. I'm hoping that there's been a resolution now that some amendments have been added, but it's unthinkable to, excuse me, to um, advocate for the demolition of rent-controlled units. I can't believe that four commissioners uh, decided to forward this with their positive recommendation. Thank you. Okay, last call for, oh, there's another one. Go ahead, caller. Caller, you've been unmuted. Uh, this is Sue Hester. I'm going to ask the Planning Commission to please schedule a joint hearing, a joint meeting with the BIC. DBI is part of the problem why projects take so long to get through, not just planning. The entire press focus has been on the Planning Commission. You should have a session with BIC. There have been a lot of indictments over the past year, past two years, of BIC per, uh, personnel at DBI. And I haven't heard one at planning. And so basically, the planning department shares the responsibility with DBI. Please have a joint meeting to talk with BIC about how they're processing projects and how they're tracking projects. You need to know that as well as I. Second thing is please have a report in writing from the director and the staff for what's going on with the pushback on the, uh, to the H statewide HGD on the housing element. There is a lot of things being said that are not, folk, not based on the real world and the planning department needs to speak up. And one of the best ways to do this is to publish the written com communications between the planning department and they. Thank you, Ben. Okay, last call for public comment, general public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, general public comment is closed. And we can move on to your regular calendar. 
for item 15, case number 2023-009433 PCA and MAP for the property at 900 Kearney Street, Special Use District, Planning Code and Zoning Map Amendments. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Veronica Flores, Planning Department Staff. The item before you is the 900 Kearney Street Special Use District, or SUD, and this was introduced by Supervisor Peskin. The proposed ordinance would create the 900 Kearney Street SUD at Assessor's Block Lot um, 17611. The underlining zoning would still remain Chinatown Community Business, or CCB. The space um, under question was a formally a formula retail financial service use doing business as East West Bank that vacated the space in 2021. The special use district would principally permit non-retail professional services on the first story and basement, as well as principally permitting an arts activity on all floors. Lastly, the SUD would not have a use size limit. After the staff reports were published, I was forwarded three letters of support regarding the ordinance, which I shared with you earlier this morning. These letters were from the Chinatown Community Development Center, Chinatown Merchants Association, and the Chinese Chamber of Commerce. All letters cited the access added flexibility for this space and to help fill the vacancy and also to activate the block and neighborhood. Um, the letters also cited support for the team's community outreach efforts regarding the ordinance. The department endorses the proposed ordinance as it addresses a significant vacancy in Chinatown, contributing to the preservation of the neighborhood's vibrancy, Further, the building's existing configurations, which was really designed for one tenant in the open floor plan with the associated spiral staircase. Um, and all of this makes it difficult to reconfigure the space to comply with the existing code. The relaxation of the use, use size controls here, along with the new use allowances, will provide the necessary flexibility to really help fill this vacancy. In addition to recommending approval of the SUD, the department would also like to use this opportunity to fix a code error, and this would be a technical amendment to section, or rather table 810 in the Chinatown Community Business District to make it consistent with the use size limitations in section 121.4. So this really was just a clerical error as a result of a passport file related to the small business zoning controls in Chinatown, North Beach, and Polk Street that was passed in 2021. And so we want to take the time here to revise table 810 to be consistent with section 121.4. Um, whenever there is a discrepancy between a zoning control table and another section of the code, generally the other section really prevails, and that's the one that the zoning control table references. This concludes the staff presentation. I'm available to answer questions, and I also want to share that we do have Mr. Alan Lowe representing the property owner who is available during the Q&A session um, for further background or details as needed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. 
Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioners, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Commissioner Reese has a disclosure, I believe. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I just realized through the presentation from planning staff that my employer, CCDC, has commented on the item. Um, I had no involvement, and I've been advised that there's no financial interest or conflict, so it won't impact my ability to vote on this item. Thank you. Great, thank you. Other comments, questions, or motions from commissioners? Commissioner Koppel? Motion to approve. Second. Second. Um, With modification. Yes. Can I just clarify? With modification. motion modification. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly want to thank staff for bringing this forward. It seems like a, a pretty good, mm -hmm. good no-nonsense and clear proposal. Indeed. Uh, on that motion to approve with modification, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So move, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 6 to 0. Item 16, case number 2023-010508, BCA, the Constraints Reduction Ordinance, also known as Housing Production Planning Code Amendments. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Aaron Starr, Manager of Legislative Affairs. <clears throat> the item before you is a duplicated version of the Constraints Reduction Ordinance. While the entire ordinance is before you, staff are only seeking your review and recommendation of an amendment added by Supervisor Mandelman. This amendment will uh, sunset the conditional use requirements established by the Corona Heights Large Residential SUD and the Central Neighborhoods Large Residence SUD at the end of 2024, and thereafter limiting the size of any dwelling unit resulting from a residential development in those SUDs to 3,000 square feet of gross floor area. Adam Thongsavat uh, from Supervisor Mandelman's office is here to speak on this item, after which I'll continue my presentation. Good afternoon, President Tanner and members of the Planning Commission. Thank you to Director Hillis and Aaron Starr for their work in partnership on this piece of legislation. My name is Adam Thongsavat and I serve as an aide to Supervisor Mandelman. I'm here today to ask for a positive recommendation for Supervisor Mandelman's duplicate file of the Mayor's Housing Constraints Reduction Ordinance. This duplicated file includes an amendment that addresses a long-standing issue in District 8, namely the proliferation of so-called monster homes. Monster homes do not support the city's housing goals, both in terms of affordability and density. That is why Supervisor Mandelman worked on legislation to combat monster homes replacing smaller, older homes that are more affordable to middle-income residents. This led to the creation of the Central Neighborhood Special Use District in 2020, 2022. In 2020, uh, 2017, his predecessor, then Supervisor Scott Weiner, led the formation of the Corona Heights Special Use District with a similar goal of constraining development of monster homes. To combat monster homes, both SUDs relied on CUs. However, with the looming implementation of SB 423, the CU controls in Corona Heights and the Central Neighborhoods SUD have relied on, that have relied on are in question. Our, our proposed amendment will sunset the current conditional use authorization requirements in the Corona Heights and Central Neighborhoods SUD at the end of 2024. As proposed, Supervisor Mendelman's amendment would limit units to 3,000 square feet and allow homeowners under the Central Neighborhoods SUD 
to make modest additions to their homes up to 15% of gross floor area. Planning recommends that that same benefit for modest additions should be extended to the Corona Heights SUD. We agree and think that approach is correct. As planning identified in the staff report, our amendments will support the general plan and housing element by eliminating subjective uh, condition use requirement and replaces it with an objective code standard. This will make housing approvals more consistent and reduce the time it takes to approve these projects. We believe these are fair and common sense changes and respectfully ask for your support. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Uh, since he went over mainly the content of it, I'll just skip to uh, staff's recommendations. Uh, so staff is recommending approval with modifications. Uh, those modifications are to one, change the maximum unit size from 3,000 square feet to 3,500 square feet in both SUDs. Um, I just like to note that in the staff report, this stated as building size, but um, to correct that, we intended to say uh, unit size and not building size. Um, allow a 20% increase in both SUDs. Conter currently, it's only 15% in the Central Neighborhood SUD and no allowance for the Corona Heights SUD. Um, and then amend planning code section 311 so that the word, word building permit is replaced with planning entitlement. Uh, this recommendation is not uh, related to Supervisor Mandelman's proposed amendments, but would help the planning department successfully implement um, recently passed AB 1114. Um, a fourth recommendation the commission may want to consider is uh, not in your staff report, um, but it is uh, only allowing the 15 or 20 percent expansion every five or 10 years um, to address possible serial permitting. So that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions as well. Thanks. Okay, we you should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Through the chair, you'll each have two minutes. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Tanner and uh, members of the Planning Commission. My name is Carolyn Kennedy. I chair the Dolores Heights Improvement Club in District 8. We support Supervisor Mandelman's amendments. They provide concrete standards that will support more affordable and more dense housing projects without impeding or slowing down production of housing. Um, the 3,000 gross square foot per unit cap and 15% limit on expansion projects it will preserve more affordable housing and incent developers to propose multi-unit projects with more affordable unit sizes. The central neighborhood's uh, large residence SUD was passed in response to the onslaught of very large residential developments in District 8. It set reasonable limits for the size of residential units, both in single-family residences and in projects with more than one unit. It has had an impact from 2014 to 2021, before this SUD came into effect. Our 12-block, square-block, rather, neighborhood had more than 35 significant home demolitions or renovations. We're not talking about the replacing the shower in the bathroom, um, including about 20 that were more than 3,000 square feet, almost all on a single 2,850 square foot lot. Since the implementation of the CNLR in December 2021, we've had only one project proposed in excess of 3,000 gross square feet. So this is working. 
While Dolores Heights may recently have become the home of monster homes, we also have existing homes, multi-units that are rent controlled in a wide variety of sizes, and we want to promote and preserve this diversity and affordability and equity in our neighborhood. These amendments will assist families that have saved enough to afford a modestly sized home in San Francisco to purchase one. Please approve Supervisor Mandelman's amendments and to the mayor's ordinance and send the legislation back to the board for speedy passage. Thank you. Okay, seeing no other members in the chambers coming forward, let's go to our remote callers. Hello, my name is Christopher Roach, um, an architect in San Francisco, resident and uh, chair of the Public Policy and Advocacy Committee of the San Francisco AIA. Um, we are um, generally in uh, support of the constraints removal ordinance. Um, we see this is a critical piece of legislation to meet our housing goals. However, uh, we've been very concerned with the continued delay and addition of um, amendments to this ordinance, and the one before you today is case in point. Uh, we vehemently disagree with the amendments that Supervisor Mandelman has added, um, and specifically the uh, size limitations. Um, this is a arbitrary uh, size limitation based on little to no research about the basic size of different kinds of households and different family units. Um, we should not be limiting the lifestyles and the family choices of uh, citizens of San Francisco. Um, we have um, form-based codes to limit size, bulk, et cetera, to make sure that projects are compatible with neighborhoods. Um, so please do not approve this uh, legislation, which has been watered down. We think that the original uh, version of this ordinance um, with the uh, protections for uh, tenant displacement should pass uh, instead of this one. Thank you very much. Oh, hi, good afternoon. It's Georgia Shudish. Uh, as I wrote in my letter, I support the uh, Mandel Mr. Supervisor Mandelman's 3,000 square foot number. Uh, here's some examples of recently sold homes in Noe Valley, the epicenter of de facto demolition. Um, 1,644 square feet, three bedroom house. 1,650 square foot house, three bedroom house. 1,275 square foot, two bedrooms. 2,770 square feet, two units, two units. 3,763 square feet, two units of equal size. 2,735 square feet, three bedrooms. 995 square feet, two bedrooms. 1,252 square feet, three bedrooms. 1,870 square feet, two bedrooms. 3,988 square feet, six units. 1,856 square feet, three bedrooms. 2,071 square feet, two units. 2,900 square feet, three units. Finally, 4,180 square feet, a five-bedroom single-family home, which was one of the original ones back in 2012 that took advantage of demo couch and was really a demolition. So that's my testimony, and I think that the 3,000 square feet pretty reasonable, especially given these historic numbers of homes that have sold recently in Noe Valley. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Bye.
Good afternoon, Commissioners. Zach Weisenberger with Young Community Developers. YCD and other organizations representing BIPOC communities across the city sent a letter expressing our considerable equity and AFFH concerns with this legislation. The letter includes three crucial amendments that will bring this proposal into closer alignment with the requirements of the housing element. The first is to amend Planning Code Sections 121.1 and 121.3 regarding large lot developments to reflect objective design standards appropriate for each zoning district and to advance housing element policy 4.5.3 for cultural districts within the PEG SUD. This also includes amending Section 303C to add a clear process and 12-month timeline for putting in place objective design guidelines for uh, PEGs and cultural districts as referenced by Housing Element Action 4.5.3 to ensure that cultural communities who under this proposed legislation will lose existing discretionary cultural guidelines are protected and empowered in retaining community voice over their built environment. Removing these design guidelines will undermine the character and integrity of our cultural communities. The second is to amend Section 206.6E to exempt PEGs, cultural districts, and areas vulnerable to displacement from the streamlining of state density bonus projects, or SDB, until benefits agreements are codified through community processes as required by Housing Element Action 7.2.2 and 8.4.2. A provision in SD 423 states that SDB projects can have an administrative hearing, which can be confirmed with planning. For example, SDB projects like 2588 Mission are scheduled to go to hearing as we speak. The third is to amend all relevant sections, which are listed in our letter, to remove areas vulnerable to displacement from the ministerial approval process as required by Housing Element Actions 8.4.2 and 9.4.2. This includes retaining the notice and review procedures of Section 311 and the conditional use requirement of Section 317. For further clarification, please refer to the letter you received. We appreciate your attention and assistance with this critical equity and civil rights matter. Please contact us if you have any questions. Thank you for your consideration. Jonathan Randolph. Very. Go ahead, sir. Hello, this is Jan Randolph. I'm very skeptical of large home restrictions. Um, I knew a friend who lived in Forest Hill in a mansion, but she wasn't a rich person. She just rented one bedroom in a house that was originally a large home for a rich family. I also know a different co-worker whose, uh, whose family considered building a large home, what he called an Osama bin Laden compound, at his family house in Palo Alto so that his extended family could live there because it was not permissible to build a multi-unit apartment there. It's also often cheaper to, build, to do a multi-family conversion of a large house into multiple units than to build a new multi-family building from scratch. If you want to build an ADU, you want to, you want to build, buy a house with an unfinished garage rather than buying you know, a, an earthquake shack that has no extra space because it'll be more expensive to do an ADU if you don't have space. So I'm also wondering whether the 3,000 square foot, does that, does that include unfurnished space that could later be converted into an ADU or not? Um, in my opinion, for housing affordability, what we most need are large buildings that are apartment buildings. And the second best is large houses that can later be converted to multifamily in a generation. Those are also good for in the long run because you let the rich person live there today and then in the next generation, next generation of residents can repurpose it into multi-unit or or uh, group housing or, or whatever is more affordable. Thank you. Thank you. Last call for public comment. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Let's go to our remote caller. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Ozzy Brown with San Francisco Land Coalition. 
Um, so I am calling to actually criticize the way the commission and particularly the mayor, mayoral appointed commissioners acted last time that this legislation was before you. Similar to the comments that uh, Ms. Juvenopoulos made uh, during the general public comment, it is completely unacceptable for the commissioners to ignore what was in, and is in the planning in the housing element that was just approved a few months ago in January of 2023. We expected you who are actually having an oversight on the planning department to have read the same document that planning had put out. So I have, um, I'm just completely perplexed that the four mayoral appointees voted for a legislation that completely went against the specific call for do not demolish rent-controlled housing. So which part of the housing element uh, was not understood by you? And I believe the public does deserve an explanation on your part. Is anything that comes to this commission going to get rubber stamped without you doing any research or reading? Uh, this is a very disconcerting situation. So I am calling to bring this to your attention, particularly the city attorney that is sitting through these hearings. Why didn't the city attorney actually bring this to your attention that you're not approving a legislation that's compliant with our housing element? Uh, so I really hope that today you take this opportunity to explain to the San Francisco residents why you voted the way you did and why you were so ignorant of the housing element that was developed. Thank you, Ms. Rom. That is your time. Thank you. Okay, final last call for public comment on this item. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Thank you. Before we go to Commissioner comments, I think Ms. Angula wanted to make some comments in addition to those from Supervisor Manelman's office. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I recognize that this is uh, Supervisor Mandelman's duplicate file, um, and we are in full support and continue to work with his office on ways that we can further this conversation on behalf of our communities. Uh, regret that Supervisor Peskin not able to join this afternoon, but um, in uh, I think Jonas is in receipt of a letter from him, so hopefully he can distribute that um, for the record. But I'm here, and in the spirit of continued collaboration around this iterative process for us to come into compliance, um, I just wanted to flag for you all that in collaboration with the city attorney's office, we've been working on some further clarifications and tweaks. Um, they include, and not all of these would require any kind of a re-referral, but we thought it would be helpful to talk about them today. Uh, a technical amendment restoring uh, 2A language to section 317, clarifying that buyout agreements do not need to be recorded at the rent board. Uh, two, a technical amendment to section 317 2G that clarifies the project sponsor shall mail and post notice so that tenants in a building can receive the same notice as property owners, particularly given that... Can I ask if you can just slow down oh, the rate sure. at which you're speaking a bit and maybe start the second thing over? Yes. I got buyouts not needed and then... I buyouts not needed to be, be recorded, recorded with Great. the rent board. Thank you. 
I, I just forward. there's just a letter. Okay, okay. all right. We, we're just getting so we're getting follow. we're getting things written and spoken, so yeah, they get in a lot of information. I didn't get Thank it until after the hearing started. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Jamis. This is uh, so we're on two. Uh, this is a technical amendment to uh, section three seven three seventeen two G that clarifies that the project sponsor shall mail and post notice so that tenants in a building can receive the same notice as property owners. And this is, as many of you know, that live here in San Francisco, oftentimes we have a lot of absentee landlords and property owners, so the people that are actually living in the neighborhood deserve to have the same kind of notice. Uh, number three, adding back the ownership requirements to the fourplex legislation. Uh, in working in conversations with the city attorney's office, they have reviewed our housing element and confirmed that it does not include any policies requiring the city to remove the ownership requirements in the fourplex legislation, and in fact have found several policies that uh, actually reinforce that, um, that uh, keeping the home ownership requirement in is something that supports our the endeavors um, in our housing element, which was, as you know, already approved by the HCD. Number four, clarifying that the 311 notif notification procedures truly apply to all of the priority equity geography SUD uh, zoning districts. At this point in time, uh, Chinatown is the only neighborhood that is not is part of the PEG SUD, but is not included under this 311 noti notification um, privilege, and so we're just conforming that and making sure that they are also included. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, although we will not at this point in time be bringing forward amendments on Monday to uh, address some of the issues that you've heard about today at public comment, we do want to be on the record with our support uh, for neighborhoods that are not included in the PEGSUD in terms of their desire to see objective standards and work collaboratively with the planning department on objective standards that are tailored to the unique physical and cultural and affordability uh, you know, parameters um, and assets in those neighborhoods. And also for those that are within the PEGSUD, that they really have an opportunity to also have their own unique and individual uh, objective standards that are tailored to their neighborhoods. So just because it's objective standard doesn't mean that it's just completely one size fits all, homogenous for everybody. Um, and then I know that there's been a lot of feedback and comments. Um, We're also in receipt of uh, a coalition letter this morning from YCD and uh, I believe the Anti-Displacement Coalition and CCDC uh, around attention, you know, what, what is it that we can do to address um, giving the community an opportunity to have a say and who receives uh, state density bonus, even though we know that these hearings are, you know, really just kind of a perfunctory opportunity for you all to engage with project sponsors. It's also an important democratic process for our communities to engage as well. And even though you are required to do what you're required to do around state density bonus. It's definitely something that we would like to see continue. So thank you very much for your time, and I'm around if you have further questions. Great, thank you. Okay, so um, we got quite a bit of information. Uh, I think that just ballooned the number of things that we're considering to some degree um, in that uh, those were not necessarily part of our staff report review, but do you wanna open the floor um, 
for staff comments and questions, perhaps we can try to first address the um, subjects that were part of the report and probably the subject of most of our review and thought around the two SUDs that would be sunsetting and then the size requirements. We, of course, talked a little bit about this topic earlier. Uh, it was around, it was earlier last year um, around kind of you know, when Supervisor Mandel was first trying to tackle um, that the, the challenge of larger homes, and we see quite a few here on CU, um, and kind of what to do about that. So I, f I found personally that this um, proposal was kind of in line what we already approved and what kind of ended up being part of that legislation. So it seemed fairly reasonable. Um, I think the where I was kind of mulling a little bit were on the staff recommendations, and it kind of gets back in some ways to this question of like what's an appropriate maximum size for a house, um, which you know I don't think there is certainly one single answer to that. It, probably my the most common planning answer to that question is well it depends, um, but we're trying to get to something objective, something that can be um, consistent and that can then help provide guidance to homeowners and home builders um, as they are working for building homes in or expanding existing homes. Um, I would say for recommendation one and two in particular, um, I think recommendation three seems fairly technical and I think it seems fine. Um, but you know, really, should we allow, should we change the size to 3,500 maximum and also allow 5% more than the supervisor proposes of 20% um, increased size? And I think there's kind of a, a fourth amendment that was kind of verbalized, which is to make sure that over time there can't be serial permitting that would lead to beyond whether it's 20 or 15 percent that someone couldn't kind of get beyond that, um, you know, year after year uh, just by filing different building permits. Um, I'm open to what commissions think. I thought the recommendations seemed reasonable. And one of the reasons that I thought 3,500 could be allowable as a size is because my understanding is we do count in the square footage uninhabitable space. So if you have a garage, a one or two car garage, uh, maybe there's slopes or other things that lead to space that's technically there but can't be used um, for a bedroom or can't be used for like, you know, finished space, it's still counted. And so that seemed to be, you know, a 3,000 square foot house, okay, and then a 500 square foot garage, seemed fairly reasonable and possibly typical um, or, you know, within the realm of, of possibility. Um, so I was open to uh, considering both of those size increases. I do see some Commissioner hands. So I'm going to go to Commissioner Diamond. Thank you. Um, I have to say that the notion of coming up with an arbitrary cra uh, cap goes against the grain for me because I don't believe we have one size fits all lot sizes or one size fits all topography um, or one size fits all neighboring properties. Um, I understand you know, why there's a desire to do this um, and it made sense to me um, that we could go above 3,000 with the conditional use process so we could consider all those factors. Um, however, if we don't wanna have a conditional use process um, going forward, then I could get my head around supporting 3,500 um, for all the reasons that are stated in the staff report and that you stated, and that I don't think we should pick the minimum number if we're not gonna have the ability to go higher. Um, so I could support 3,500. Um, I would not be supportive of 3,000. I think staff's um, suggestion for a 20% increase in both SUDs makes sense to me for the same reasons, uh, but only if accompanied by a prohibition on seriatim changes. Uh, you know, I could live with every five years. Um, that seems fine to me. Um, 
I also think that characterizing a 3,000 square foot home as a monster house um, would be surprising to many people in houses all over the city who live in 3,000 square foot houses that fit in. You know, a 3,000 square foot house on a 25 by 100 lot may very well appear as a super large house, but on a larger lot, um, I'm not sure that the characterization of it as a monster house is necessarily appropriate, given that we do want to have families live in the city and, you know, families want to have three or four bedrooms if they have many children. You know, we now have work at home, you know, often for both income earners and there's a need for office space. So I have to say I object to the use of the term, especially when we're seeing 11,000 square foot houses in Seacliff. Um, relative to that, the 3,000 or 3,500 square foot house um, wouldn't necessarily uh, be characterized by me as a monster house. Um, but that being said, I am okay approving this so long as we add in the staff's recommendations accompanied by a five-year CIATM. And I'll just put that out as a motion to approve under those circumstances. I'll second that motion. Commissioner Imperial. Um, I have a question to the staff um, regarding the number two, allow 20% increase. Is that, um, so if the maximum cap is 3,500 square feet plus 20 increase yeah so if you're over 3500 and you come in and say <clears throat> want to do a small addition like a, a bay window or a kitchen addition on the back um, without that allowance you wouldn't be able to so it's 20 percent above mm -hmm. what you currently have um, and then again having some sort of five or ten year look back so that you can't do a serial permitting Mm -hmm. type of scenario. Okay, thank you. That's um, just a clarification. Um, oh, you can see. Um, my thoughts on this, and you know, I, you know, we've seen more than 3,000 square feet, that is 3,300, 3,200, 3,500, um, and we tend to approve it. Um, my, however, my, I'm, actually still leaning on the original legislation by the supervisor uh, in terms of capping at 3,000 square feet with allowance of perhaps adding the 20% increase. Um, for me, it's the, you know, again, there has, I think there's a way to do it where, where you can fit the habitable and inhabitable in 3,000 square feet, and you can even make two units out of it. Um, so, so I would still, uh, for me, I would still retain as what the original legislation with allowable increase of 20% increase. So I'm um, uh, on, par, or on board on the approved with number two and three. And then also, um, it looks like there's also, you know, recent um, comments from the public and also with the supervisor Peskin on many things. It sounds like you also want to add this on this legislation or... Um, this is my question to you, Ms. Angul. Is this something that should, um, you're suggesting to add on the legislation by Mandelman or working with Supervisor Mandelman? Just trying to clarify. This is just something that uh, we wanted to give a heads up as we are continuing to work with the city attorney's office on uh, amendments for Monday's land use hearing. Mm -hmm. And so wanted to give 
the commission an opportunity, you know, as things are moving and being and flowing, um, to ask questions or to debate amongst yourselves. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, I, I thought it, it's uh, added um, <laughs> comments or, um, yeah, so I, you know, for Supervisor Peskin, uh, I guess we're just making comments. Yeah, we will come back to that if okay. we can, just to try to have some conciseness. Okay. Conciseness. I'll, I'll retreat back to that. Okay, and then we'll, we'll come back around. Come thank around. you. Mm-hmm. Commissioner Braun? Uh, I... In general, I'm I'm in favor with legislation, and, and I'm generally in favor of the idea of us finally moving towards having an objective design standard, and having something that's really clear and helpful for applicants to understand, and um, so that we don't have the situation we have week after week at this commission, in which we are dealing with the conditional use authorization for something that's often just a little bit over 3,000 square feet, and it's such a subjective sort of decision-making process about is this too much over? Is it not enough? So, or not, not, never not enough, but is it too much over? Um, that being said, so in terms of the recommendations, I actually, I, I am in favor of the increase, staff recommendation one to increase the maximum size to 3,500 square feet, mostly just based on the logic that was outlined in the staff report of you know, the, the 3,000 square foot limit is in the Corona Heights SUD, the central neighborhoods, uh, SED, it's 4,000 square feet, and that's actually the majority of the, that's a much larger area. Um, so to me, kind of taking the average of those two, you know, there's no hard and fast reasoning for any of these particular numbers, I think, but still, taking the average seems pretty fair, given that most of this area has been operating under a 4,000 square foot for a um, CUA kind of approach. Um, and then as far as incre- 15% versus 20%, I'm comfortable with going up to the 20% number. I don't have strong feelings either way on that. I do very much want to see the serial permitting limitation included. Uh, I'm comfortable with five years. I would even go to 10 years, honestly, but five years is, is fine as well. I'd, again, no strong feelings. I just don't want to see people coming back year after year to continue expanding these homes. Uh, so... Yeah, but those those are my thoughts. I, I do believe I can support the the current motion. Great, thank you, Commissioner Ruiz. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just want to say that I'm supportive of the supervisor's recommendations. You know, as President Tanner, you mentioned, we discuss this quite frequently. I feel like this is probably one of the most things that we've seen before the commission um, in wanting to encourage increased density and not folks just proposing these huge homes. Um, So I believe that the supervisor's recommendations is in alignment with the housing element that we passed, um, but I would be amenable to supporting um, Commissioner Imperial's suggestion of including the 20%. Maybe if there was a requirement to include an ADU, for example, I would be supportive of the increased um, 3,500, but I am not supportive of the planning staff's recommendations. Okay, thank you. I do want to ask maybe, um, thank you all for commenting on um, what's before us. I don't know if it's Mr. Starr or the city attorney, the um, the four items that Ms. Angulo read into the record, if those are made as amendments to the legislation, do we know if that will then have to come back to us? Because if we're going to have it again, or is today's reading of amendments that are not yet drafted trying to be sufficient for discussion to not recirculate? Is that the intent that's happening? 
I think since they've been discussed here that they wouldn't have to come back, but I would defer to um, the city attorney on that. Uh, sure. Um, Austin Yang, deputy city attorney. Um, under the charter, the legislation has to come to the planning commission um, to be approved or disapproved. Uh, often uh, topics or concepts will get brought up and discussed at planning commission in this way, and then they can be made as amendments in land use committee in f subsequent weeks. So for these, the four that uh, Ms. Angulo read, um, I believe that they would not have to come back to the Planning Commission. Okay, and do we need to make a motion on them? Because I don't think, I don't know, I, I guess I would say just reading them now, I can comment, but I, and I don't know where we're gonna get to agreement, um, and I'm loath to spend lots of time talking about something that hasn't been actually written down um, in its full extent. Um, so I will give my best crack, I guess, at, at commenting on them. Um, I did pull them up, thank you, Mr. Starr. Um, I think the, the buyout seems fine. Um, I think making sure that uh, owners and tenants receive notice is important. So I think posting is important. I'm supportive of that. Um, the ownership piece, you know, I think if we're trying to go for, and I'll, I'll say this comment on a later item, if we're trying to increase density, I think ownership requirements get in the way of that, if that is truly the goal. And so I'm not supportive of having ownership requirements for fourplex. Or if we do have that, I would like to see density decontrol throughout the entire um, opportunity neighborhoods and then the fourplex ownership becomes a pathway of one of many, but I, I don't see how we can get to our goals if we keep constraining ourselves and we're trying to reduce constraints, not increase them. Um, so I think it's an additional constraint on adding housing to the housing stock. Um, and then for the 311 notifications, I think that made sense to make sure we're just kind of doing what we say we want to do and making sure that all the priority geographies are included, um, including that including Chinatown. And then lastly, I think there was it wasn't written down, but it was stated um, at the dais or at the podium around making sure that state density bonus programs still come here. I believe that was specifically in our letter from HCD that we stop having state density bonus projects come to the commission. Where there's not an underlying entitlement. Right. So currently, so you, in like in the mission, right, if you've got a project on mission, the mayor's constraints ordinance did not get rid of that underlying entitlement. It's only in kind of outside the priority equity geography, but the ordinance does remove the state density bonus hearing everywhere. Right, and I think that we've been asked, we've said we wanted to do that. I think we've been asked or emphasized perhaps by the state that we ought to do that, I believe. You could, I mean, you, again, I think you could keep it. In, right, we could. But, in, but then it runs to this, it's, there's weird dynamic, right? Because 423, once it takes effect, um, where projects are ministerial, in the equivalent of priority equity geographies, although the maps aren't exactly the same, but the state calls out kind of the equivalent of priority equity geographies, you're required to have a hearing. So that hearing would be, if you had a state density bonus project that's ministerially approved before the application, and we'll hear about this next week, <clears throat> there's a hearing requirement. You could have a state density bonus project with underlying CUs if the ordinance passes, there would be no hearing on that. If it's not a state density bonus project and just has the CU, it's not taking advantage, there would still be a CU hearing here. So it depends which path you're going down, uh, depending on well, which I was, where, if, if, if yeah. you do not have a hearing. But in that case where there's a state density bonus project that's not taking advantage of 423, there wouldn't be a hearing. 
Right. So it sounds like we'll still have some hearings for state density yeah. bonus projects. And for ministerial. And for ministerial projects. Um, and so I think, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with the sentiment that having a hearing can create more awareness for folks around what's happening and even for us, for the neighborhoods. Um, and I think my my challenge would be to, can we get to something similar without a hearing? What What is the, what's the role the hearing plays and how do we want that to play? And it sounds like we have, uh, we're going to have a variety of pathways for people to um, make changes to properties and so some of those pathways will have hearings some of them won't and I think providing some clarity also to community partners as this legislation sets up of like when will there be a hearing and when will there not be a hearing so they can understand where are the waypoints and where are those milestones and points to engage with um, project sponsors did you want to add something Mr. Starr? Yeah I just wanted to add some context to the 311 discussion so Chinatown has never had 311 or, or 312 notification so this would be so we aren't taking it away it wasn't an error um, so by adding it, it's an entirely new process you're adding to Chinatown, which is fine if that's what the community wants. I just want to be clarify that, that it was never there to begin with. Okay, so. great. Thank you. Um, so those are my comments. And I think the last comment was on the objective standards. I would say one of my hopes is that, you know, in this, you know, vision uh, would be that as we have more streamlining and uh, Ms. Wadi's planners are wondering, what am I going to do with my time now that we have so much streamlining, my, I don't have any work to do, um, that we have their brilliance go towards some objective standards or we have more capacity basically in the department to do more of the fine grain work of really looking at our neighborhoods and understanding what makes them special, working with our cultural districts that don't have land use regulations to help them have a process to understand how do they want to see um, their culture represented in the built environment like Cayabinta Quattro has which have been excellent. We've seen the results of those um, those standards really, you know, bring buildings to life in a different way. And so my hope would be that we could get to more frying grain work with our neighborhoods and just more neighborhood planning overall. Again, the next item we'll talk about the need to be planning for libraries and parks and schools and all the things that make a neighborhood go. And I think that's part of this kind of next edge. Um, we've got a lot to do in our housing element, but I am hopeful that we can get there um, to really keep um, the spirit of having our neighborhood to be special places. So with that, I want to call on Commissioner Imperial. Thank you, President Tanner. Yeah, um, so in terms of the just going with um, Ms. Angulo's and um, Supervisor Peskin's in terms of the added amendments. Um, yes, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I agree with the Section 317, um, the first two, and all the Section 317 amendment not recorded in rent board, and also the Section 317.2G in terms of mailing the post to the tenants. Um, as far as I know, I thought that's already part of the, that's not something being um, eliminated, but is there, is yeah, I understand. It was, to, it was to, to make sure that in the new legislation we didn't lose that it's yeah, also yeah. posted. That's my yeah. understanding. It may just be, it may be there, but we're just ensuring that it is. Okay. Yeah, I just want to. Uh, well, it's good to still put that just to ensure. <laughs> um, in terms of the um, homeownership requirement, I think I, you know, it, I, I'm very approved of that um, amendment just because, um, again, the the homeownership requirement it addresses the the speculation aspect of it because there are. Um, Again, the speculation practice that owns for only a year or, or two years and then sell it back to the market. So that, in that way, that creates more displacement. So the requirement, I believe it was in the fourplex legislation that adding it for five year, um, because that gives stability at least for a tenant um, to, to be in that. Um, 
and you know, with the change of um, um, landlordship, um, that can create um, changes in the tenancy as well. Um, so, so I, I am approval of that because I think that's, um, that's a tool for anti-displacement strategy. Um, and in terms of 311 notice applied, yes, I also, um, also agreed on that to all priority equity geographers plus Chinatown. And also, um, in terms of the other recommendations, um, I do agree. Also, I want to highlight also in terms of the objective of creating objective designs for priority equity geographies, cultural districts, and also to include the areas of vulnerabilities. Um, I'm not sure where we have landed in that in that la on that map when we're talking about areas of um, vulnerabilities. Um, but that's something that, again, if you know, if we're talking about. I think, I'm not sure if Chinatown is actually part of the area of vulnerabilities because there, there is a different map that is being used. So, um, so that's also another thing too, that you know, the areas of vulnerability, something needs to be honed in. Um, and I know that the planning department is, has used the DPH map, I believe that was the, um, that was the basis for it. And, um, but yeah, those are kind of like the conversations that the areas of vulnerabilities needs to be honed in um, or coded in. Um, so, so yeah, I, I approve. Um, I agree in many of the you know um, comments or added in the amendments. And I guess this is also my question. And perhaps this is going to be the more conversation we're going to have on next week about there's also the, stream, uh, the streamlining, and I agree with you, President Tanner, in terms of the streamlining of the state density and also the code compliance. I think there needs to have a clear message to the community as to what is really going to be part of the CUA that's still going to be part of the commission. Because the HCD um, policy review, it's very clear. It says streamline all density bonus um, projects. Doesn't have to go to the plan. Planning Commission, and my understanding is that as Planning Commission, we can even make a resolution <laughs> that it doesn't have to come here. But I don't know; it's got to be a debate for all of us as well. Um, but, but yeah, I think we need to be clear as to um, what are the CUAs going to be coming to the state and city, and also the code compliant projects as well. So, thank you, Commissioner Ruiz. Yeah, thank you. I just want to say supportive of all of the um, recommended amendments that the supervisor, Supervisor Peskin's office suggested. Um, and then I also want to point to the letter that was sent. And I know other commissioners might not have had time to read it since it was sent be right before the hearing started. Um, but I would just like to encourage as this goes forward, maybe the planning department can assist um, getting the legislation from the mayor's office in alignment with what the housing element says in terms of equity. Because I see and I appreciate all of the actions and policies that were called out that don't necessarily complement what is being said in the mayor's legislation. Um, so to start, in terms of objective standards for um, priority equity geographies 
SUD. I'm supportive of that. We have an item that follows that talks about objective standards. Maybe we can ask the department in more detail what they think about creating specific objective standards for um, priority equity geographies, where that is in the process, how soon can we get that started, seeing that in January we're going to see a lot of projects come before us. Um, that only gives us the ability to have objective standards. So where is that in the process? And if the community is requesting that, let's do that and let's get that started. So I'm supportive of that amendment in terms of adding that language in 121.1 and 121.3. I also have a question for the department. So the community included actions that discussed first codifying community benefit districts before we allow any streamlining and specifically kind of excluding areas vulnerable to displacement and the PGSUD to streamlining. But there is no language on state density bonus, which there is language within um, this mayor's legislation. So they are calling that up in the letter and I wonder, is that possible? to kind of exclude those two particular areas from the streamlining of state density bonus? I believe we'd have to, I mean, there's there's been discussion about this on the state's recommendation on this and how they opined. I believe we could, I believe, in, but I think we'd have to, we'd wanna to talk to HCD about it. So again, the, the mayor's constraints legislation leaves in CUs for like large lot in priority equity geographies. I think you've had issues in the past where state density bonus projects come to you that have those underlying CUs and you can't really do much on the underlying CU, right? I think we talked about it. But I still think you can have those, those hearings could still happen. Mm -hmm. But I think we'd want to clarify what HCD's recommendation on that. I believe they said remove state density bonus hearings where there wasn't an underlying entitlement. Okay. And in those cases, like a, a CU for a project on mission, that underlying entitlement still exists. But then you get into this 423, right? So if that project, if it's state density bonus and ministerial, it's not gonna have that hearing. That, that'll be ministerial, although it's required if it's in a geography called out by the state to have a hearing. So maybe we can somehow align that required state hearing with what we're requiring also yeah. even for projects that aren't taking advantage of the state or that ain't, aren't taking advantage of ministerial approval i think it'd be a little odd to have a ministerial project that has a hearing and one that's not ministerial that kind of does so let us let us okay. talk to hcd and get, at least get clarity to the board on yeah. that Okay, thank you. That would be helpful. I mean, what I see happening is that we are being so overwhelmed by all of these state laws that are encouraging us to streamline housing that the community is grappling with, okay, what's possible, what's not possible. Yeah. Here's an opportunity to include amendments in the name of equity. Let's also lean on our housing element, which is trying to center this yeah. um, and so that's what I see the community doing and I think that we need to kind of get get our heads together and try to align the two right. um, and I think the mayor's constraints ordinance generally did that 311 remained in priority geographies 317 remained CUs and underlying um, kind of entitlements remained in priority equity geographies where they didn't were were outside of those yeah priority so that was the fundamental principle and I think you know, people have called out specific places where 
we're questioning whether that kind of exists, but I think fundamentally it's there. Yeah, and it seems like areas vulnerable to displacement is not interchangeable with priority equity geographies. And so it seems like the community is asking to include that, that yeah. honors a separate. It's not, a, I don't think it's areas vulnerable to displacement, it's the, uh, it's the Berkeley. Yeah, report. urban yeah. displacement oh, project there, maps. Yeah, and those maps changed so they were harder to use than the health departments areas of vulnerable areas of vulnerable areas of vulnerability which mm -hmm. uh, we're combining the two which then became kind of the priority equity geographies areas subject it's kind of i think it was areas i can't remember the exact term subject yeah. to displacement or yeah yeah there were two maps called out in that housing element um so the, that's the gist of my comments i guess the last thing i like to say is kind of piggybacking off President Tanner is just more clarification of for the community in terms of what will get noticed, what sure. will not get noticed, um, and if it's not going to get noticed, how will the community find out about things yeah, yeah. happening in their neighborhood? I think that it's very unclear to me even. And we can um, talk about that more next week, but I think in anticipation of the board meeting too, we can get more information and clarity on that in advance So also. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Diamond? Uh, thank you. Um, two questions, again, on the state density bonus projects, because <laughs> I'm still not sure I've got it. Um, so question to Supervisor Puskin's office. Are you asking us to have SDB hearings when there's no other reason for a project to be at the Planning Commission? I think I'm going to say on its face, no, no is the short answer. No, and is, I think, no yeah, is. but I think the, the long, the more nuanced answer is that, you know, I want to associate myself with commissioner Ruiz's comments that all of these contradicting constantly vague <laughs> moving goalposts, state laws and policies and recommendations and you know it, it is so difficult to try to figure out where is the inflection point where we can have some kind of a collaborative discussion here locally and have things conform to um, decades of established community planning processes that have you know helped create neighborhoods as iconic as North Beach and Chinatown have preserved uh, families and seniors and artists and workers um, for generations and it it's just very confusing to try to understand okay if this person's just going to come in and there's no opportunity to even inquire of the project sponsor do you do you know the neighborhood that you're going into and what is a community benefit what benefit uh, are we going to be able to receive as a community in exchange for the incredible benefit that you are receiving as a result of SDB. I mean, and you guys have all had these conversations, right, before it, and I really appreciate those conversations that you've had here at this commission around state density bonus, and I know that you get it. So I, I think we're just trying to figure out how can we support, you know, the letter that you are hopefully now in receipt of from the community groups that are just feeling like, wow, like we've spent 
decades trying to, and we've spent years trying to figure out objective standards for say the Mission District, right? Which has two cultural districts in it, has a, a very specific type of typology, building typology, as well as you know, infrastructure, open space, very different than say Chinatown or the Tenderloin. So where, how are they, as we're upzoning and really encouraging, incentivizing state density bonus projects on corridors like the, mich like the mich main mission uh, boulevard, Miracle Mile, um, you know, where we have all these small businesses that are not protected, we don't have relocation, we don't have preservation protections for all these immigrant small businesses there. So everyone's kind of just trying to figure out how do we, you know, hi, we want to be engaged. And um, so that that is the long <laughs> answer to your question, well, Commissioner. I mean, we're grappling with the reality of, you know, decades of practice running up against, you know, edicts from HCD that take us in a very right. different direction um, and trying to figure out if there's a middle path or something is what yeah. I hear you, you know, asking us to do. Yeah. I just want to express my personal frustration as a commissioner, maybe the others share it, that when state density bonus projects are in front of us, there's virtually nothing we can require. And the neighborhoods expect us uh, to be able to do something, and there is a huge disconnect between the expectations the, of the people who come in yeah. front of us and our ability to really have any power to do anything. And it's a very frustrating position as a commissioner, and so I question, you know, if there's really nothing we can do, why are we creating an expectation mm -hmm. that we can? So while I understand the desire to have a forum for collaboration, um, I'm not sure that an SDB hearing in front of the Planning Commission where we can't do anything um, is the right place to do that. So I want to um, second Commissioner Tanner's mm. you know, comment that we need to think about what the right forum is to do that. And I just question whether this is the right forum if our hands are tied by uh, HCD. So right. I don't know if that's maybe something that in the pre-post, now that we're yeah. doing pre-post application or more post-application, because I, I think the other thing is that you have this opportunity to get, um, uh, pay, you know, to, to ask questions when all the legalese and project sponsor paperwork is very, for folks in layperson land, is hard to understand, and they get an opportunity to have you all ask questions of the project sponsor and go, oh, that's what that means, or oh, I didn't realize they were doing this, or so I don't know if maybe there's another right, way it, to. It could be used the, the process in 423 and try to mirror that, like with projects that maybe are in those geographies but aren't taking advantage of state entity bonus, because to some extent the state has now required us to do a little more of that. You know, having a hearing where we can't necessarily deny a project on ministerial projects, but it's coming early on in the process, like as a pre-application hearing, but they will be here and ultimately those projects ministerial. So maybe there's some alignment we can make. There. Certainly. Great. I think we're all Thank aligned you. on the same objective. Yeah. Did you have okay. other questions? And then my second question is really a question for the city attorney's office, and I'm not necessarily expecting an answer today, but can if you want or get back to us, which is... Um, clarification on the requirements of the housing element under general plan law, which is, are we required to follow to the letter every requirement of every policy um, 
on every decision we make um, under the general plan? Or is there a balancing to make sure that overall we are complying with the intent um, that's there? Or so that's, you know, one is a balancing and the other is every single decision we make cannot in any way violate any policy that's in any part of the general plan. Does the city attorney want to respond now or take some time to? I, I can, um, I'll just say that um, I, I can follow up with you separately about that. It's a little bit of a complicated question, mm -hmm. um, but you know, in general, the, the mandate is on balance. On balance, okay. okay. Thank you for that clarification. I'm gonna just skip to Commissioner Braun since he hasn't spoken on this round of comments and then I'll go to Commissioner Imperial Ruiz and then we'll maybe vote on our motion. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I don't think I have very extensive comments, but um, yeah, I do think that when it comes to the idea of having objective design standards um, that could be customized for different parts of the city, I am actually very much on board with this idea uh, and recognizing, again, you know, the diversity and, and unique circumstances of many of our neighborhoods. So the, the path and sort of legislative approach to that, I, I, we'll have to see how that works, but um, the basic idea of it makes a lot of sense to me, as so long as the standards actually are objective design standards. And I think that we just need to be careful that whatever emerges from those processes, from putting them in place for certain neighborhoods, uh, they actually stand up uh, legally as objective design standards. So, um, but otherwise, yeah, it, the, the basic idea of having some variety uh, in those standards, depending on the area, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, otherwise, as far as the intended uh, amendment shared by Supervisor Peskin's office, um, I am comfortable with the, these. I am comfortable with the amendments. Uh, I think that as far as the ownership requirements go, I think in the final fourplex legislation, I believe it was a year, one-year ownership requirement um, that was ultimately adopted, or is it still, is there clarification on that? It was one year. It was one year, ultimately. Yes, I think it was five than one. Um, so, but you know, th that ownership requirement, um, I am comfortable with right now as it stands. Great. And that's it. Thank, Thank you. you. Commissioner Imperial? Yeah, I just <laughs> um, kind of want to have a bold question in terms of like HCD. I know there's going to be, um, is there a way where HCD can present to the planning commission. <laughs> so we can have questions, yeah. directly ask them questions. That would be interesting <laughs> to invite them to participate. Or, um, yeah, I, I mean, of course, you know, the, the staff, the planning director have this conversation with the HCED, but I think perhaps for the commissioners, um, you know, whether we give you the questions the director and then perhaps you can report us back because especially on the HCED policy, um, there are so many questions that also, you know, I, I know we're going to have a conversation in that, that probably we're not going to have that answer until after that um, hearing we have. But I'm wondering if we can um, pass some of the questions to HCD um, and hopefully invite them here at the Planning Commission, <laughs> too. Yeah, we, I mean, we can certainly invite them. Next week, we do have the hearing on state legislation and the policy and practice review. So certainly you can compile questions that we can forward to them if we can't answer, but we can also invite them. Great, thank you. Commissioner Ruiz? Yeah, um, last comment question, we can move on. But just in, again, on the objective design standards, 
I think even for myself, some clarification on what is and what is not possible for objective design standards for the community. Um, and then a question for the city attorney, in particular to state density bonus projects, even if priority equity geographies were to implement objective design standards, could a developer request a concession or incentive to not abide by yes. those standards? So I think even more reason to kind of figure out how community is going <laughs> to become aware of projects that might not come before the commission because we might see projects that will not even abide by what communities are hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you all for the robust discussion. Thank you Could, to the supervisor's office for being here. Did you want to add something, Director Hill? No, I mean, I was just going to add to this, to the one-year ownership provision, because we've had a lot of debate about that as well. And I mean, the, the constraints ordinance removes that provision, because I think it gets to this question you've been talking about. Like, on one side, we want to kind of have a hammer or a stick to large single-family homes, right, and want to encourage them to be multifamily, smaller units. But then we add these provisions like that ownership requirement or you know, you need a 317 CU hearing. I think that's a disincentive to develop these lots into two units, three units, four unit buildings. So it, you know, we grapple with this, that sometimes project sponsors don't want to come through a CU process where they're proposing a 4,500 square foot three unit building you know, in, in kind of have that process. So move to do a, like a larger single family home. So I think that's been an impediment. We haven't seen a ton of fourplex projects come forward. I think because homeowners tend not to be the ones who redevelop projects. Because they're living in their homes. So yeah. it's kind of hard to do both at once. So you have to be either extremely wealthy because you can live somewhere else for a while or you have to be able to live in a construction site. So I don't know. It's very difficult to do those things. That said, we have a motion um, from Commissioner Diamond. I believe that it was with all the staff recommendations and a five, to, was it five years serial five. look back? I've, five I've years? Five year. Yeah. Great. Thank you all for a robust discussion. If there's nothing further, Commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve with staff modifications, including a five year serial permitting review. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? No. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? No. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. Some move commissioners that motion passes four to two with Commissioners Ruiz and Imperial voting against. Great. Thank you all. Appreciate your time. Commissioners, item 17, case number 2021-005878-CWP, expanding housing choice informational presentation. All right, um, good afternoon, commissioners. Lisa Chen, providing an informational update on our housing element zoning program, expanding housing choice. If I could get the slides, please. Uh, so today's hearing will provide a high level update on the project, summarizing our community engagement over the past year and sharing our new draft zoning proposal. The second half of the presentation will include a deeper dive into objective design standards and we have Trent Greenan from our staff here to discuss initial design concepts that, are, that we are refining based on public feedback. Um, we often like to start presentations with just a reminder of the people we're working to expand housing choices for. Uh, so at our events earlier this summer, we shared quotes that we heard during the housing element and other outreach efforts highlighting just how widespread our affordable housing crisis has become. 
through the outreach process for the rezoning, we've actually continued to gather stories from people facing housing challenges. And the quotes that you see here are from a set of 15 interviews conducted by our team this summer. For example, we spoke with first responders who are increasingly moving out of the city and who might not be nearby during emergencies. Educators who want the opportunity to live in the communities they serve and who also see how the housing crisis impacts students and families. And workers in the building trades who literally build the housing that we need but may be commuting for hours to get to their job sites here. We also had the honor of working with Michelle McNeil, who's the in-house artist for the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. She created these illustrations to bring some of these stories to life, and you may have seen these images promoting our outreach events on muni buses and newspapers and on social media. We are continuing to center these stories as we work to implement the housing element and the mayor's housing for all initiative. This slide is a reminder that the work is truly interconnected. Um, in addition to the rezoning, we are actively working towards implementing affordable housing funding, process improvements, and collaboration with equity communities. As described in our prior hearings, our rezoning work is specifically designed to meet state requirements and our RENA obligations by adding capacity for over 36,000 housing units in the housing opportunity area shown here. Most of this housing will be comprised of six to eight story mid-rise buildings directly along transit routes, commercial streets, and other major sites. Under the mayor's executive directive, the department is working to develop this proposal by January 2024 for consideration by policymakers soon after. The hope is that by moving the rezoning forward on this ambitious timeline, we can open up opportunities for development and get us closer to meeting our RENA targets. Here is a summary of our outreach activities we've been implementing over the past year. Our first phase of outreach was during spring and summer, and at that time we gathered feedback on two initial zoning concept maps. We're now in phase two and are sharing an updated zoning proposal, which we are continuing to refine for adoption early next year. And here is a snapshot of our outreach activities, which have included open houses, focus groups, online surveys, webinars, educational workshops, and briefing with neighborhood, briefings with neighborhood groups. Exhibit C in your packet summarizes phase one of our community engagement and some of the feedback we've heard so far. Uh, and I, I just wanna acknowledge our incredible team of staff who've made all these events possible, some of whom are in the chambers today, some listening online. Um, so this has been a very ambitious undertaking and uh, there's been a lot of information for people to digest. And so our team has been working really hard to um, create events that are informative and inclusive uh, where people can grapple with these um, issues and, and really share their hopes and concerns with us. Um, along these lines, we've been fortunate to partner with community groups in these neighborhoods. Uh, because we're working across a vast geography, we've supplemented our, our broader events, like the open houses, with more targeted and intimate events, like our focus groups and community conversations. We've been deliberate and proactive about reaching populations who are underrepresented in planning decisions, and the organizations listed here have helped expand our reach to renters, low-income residents, non-English speakers, and others who face greater housing insecurities. Here are some of the key themes from our outreach to date. So across the board, we have heard a, a broad recognition of the severity of our housing crisis and a call for more hou affordable housing, tenant protections, and small business supports. Regarding the upzoning itself, we have continued to hear a range of perspectives. 
um, including from people who want to see even more housing added at different heights and in different locations, and from others who continue to be very concerned about greater densities in these neighborhoods. We've also heard many comments about our housing approval process and about the infrastructure and services needed to support new housing. As our outreach events wrap up early next year, we'll be back with an updated summary of feedback. Here are the two zoning concept maps that we shared at our phase one events and end at our informational hearing in July. If you recall, the key difference is that the map on the left distributes homes more broadly throughout the neighborhoods and includes a buffer of density decontrolled areas off of the transit and commercial streets. The map on the right concentrates housing on the corridors themselves and has slightly higher heights as a result. At our phase two open houses earlier this month, we shared this updated draft zoning proposal. Today, we actually just added an interactive online version of the map, um, which you can find through our website. The proposal focuses growth on the transit and commercial streets, which is similar to map two from the summer. Um, and even though we did hear a lot of interest in the buffer areas, we ultimately kept the focus on the corridors uh, because that's where we tend to see larger sites that are more likely to be developed and that have less existing housing, which can help min minimize displacement. Focusing on the larger sites can also help us maximize community benefits like affordable housing and funding for infrastructure. In response to feedback, we did increase the heights further in various locations, uh, for example, at key intersections on Geary, Lombard, and 19th Avenue, and also on some streets that weren't on prior maps, like Portola Avenue and some portions of Irving, and, uh, Irving Street and Ocean Avenue. All told, we estimate that the zoning proposal would create capacity for roughly 54,000 new housing units, which is similar to the proposals we submitted in the housing element and well exceeds our RENA gap of 34,000 units. Um, and as a reminder, this map shows final, uh, intended final heights, inclusive of the state density bonus and any other bonus programs. Um, as part of this effort, we are developing a local zoning program and projects will have the flexibility to use uh, either the local program or state programs depending on their preference. Along with the maps, we've also been working with our consultant AECOM on some visualizations of what these streets could look like as new housing comes online. Um, so this view shows Geary Boulevard near Arguello Street looking east. And this view is from Noriega looking west to 25th Avenue. Um, and we're actually going to be continuing to um, create more visualizations so showing other streets and neighborhoods. We have heard a lot of questions about why we're creating a local program and what it's meant to accomplish. Um, so we, we just want to acknowledge that the state density bonus has been a critical tool to enable housing production and will continue to be widely used, as you have just been discussing. Um, that said, here are some of the reasons why we are creating a local program and how we're working to make it an attractive and flexible option in parallel with the state program. Um, so in essence, the program is meant to codify and incentivize core public policy goals related to equi equity, affordability, objective design standards, and other principles of good urbanism. Um, the program is also meant to create more predictable urban form, um, since state density bonus projects typically take advantage of waivers uh, to um, avoid or sidestep um, our, our um, height and bulk requirements. 
Um, in order to incentivize applicants to use the local program, we are aiming to create flexibility around meeting affordable housing requirements. So in contrast with the state program, our local program would allow a diversity of compliance options, uh, including off-site fee, um, off-site, oh, sorry, on-site fee, off-site, land dedication, uh, and potentially rent-controlled housing as well. Um, the requirements would also be set at citywide rates um, where they are currently. Um, meaning that we're not requiring extra affordable housing in order to get the heights in our program. Another major goal is to reduce risk for project sponsors by making sure that the program does include clear and objective standards and that projects that meet those standards receive streamlined and ministerial review. Um, so we are planning to discuss more of the goals and design of this local program at future hearings, uh, but here's a high-level list of just some of the topics that we're working on. Um, and so in addition to the ideas I've already mentioned, we're also looking at tenant protections and demolition controls, ways that we can support existing businesses, and policies and mitigations around historic preservation. Um, there's a lot of other technical work happening behind the scenes to support these policies. Um, so, for instance, we are, we're working on a pair of financial feasibility analyses, including a detailed pro forma analysis conducted by Century Urban, uh, which will look at prototypical sites, um, and a broader um, housing probability model with a Turner Center that will look at the plan area and citywide. We're also teeing up a racial and social equity analysis of the rezoning that will accompany the final code package, and we're developing an inventory of potential sites for affordable housing, uh, which will look both citywide and in the plan area, uh, and may include additional zoning changes to incentivize affordable housing on these sites. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Trent Green and now to discuss objective design standards. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Trent Green and Staff Architect. I'm pleased to be here this afternoon to present uh, some highlights of our draft uh, corridor design standards, which are currently under development. Um, the standards will primarily address 65 to 85 foot tall buildings on corridors. Um, they will replace urban design guidelines that are currently used for review, and they will allow for ministerial approval of projects once adopted within the rezoned area. So in addition to the public outreach that Lisa presented, we are undergoing stakeholder outreach with project sponsors to give valuable feedback and ensure that standards are feasible from a development standpoint. Uh, we already held one workshop um, that got some really valuable feedback and we'll be going back to them at least once again. Um, Overall, we're taking a light touch with these standards and really focusing on the most impactful elements to massing and architecture that allows for design freedom while respecting the neighborhoods where they'll be built. Um, our hope is that they'll allow for flexibility with different options and how the standards can be achieved. Additionally, we're collecting data on previously approved state density bonus projects to determine the concessions and waivers that are requested most. Um, the idea is to sort of tailor the standards to sort of address some of the most commonly sought waivers um, for those projects. Um, and in so doing, make the local program uh, more appealing and to compete with the state density bonus. Um, so the standards are broken down into two categories, site design and architecture. Um, site design, we're looking at the overall massing of the buildings, how they sit on the site, 
looking at like things like ground floor setbacks and upper, upper floor stepbacks and so forth. So we've sort of developed a hypothetical uh, model of a corridor um, showing a mix of development that might happen over the years with some development staying and um, sort of different heights and so forth. Um, so looking at front and side step backs, um, again, very commonly in the city you have this juxtaposition of taller buildings next to um, smaller buildings on corridors. So this isn't something, this is something we want to sort of encourage. So we don't, uh, we don't feel that stepping down to lower buildings along the corridor is necessarily um, something that is needed. The corridors are, you know, pretty wide. They can take the height of tall buildings. And this creates sort of a dynamic streetscape along the corridors. Um, so generally, we want to sort of move the volumes, put the volume at the street, and allow buildings to go up, say, 85 feet, potentially at the corridor. Um, and in so doing, sort of reduce the impacts to the neighbors um, behind. And uh, you know, we are going to be also looking at building modulation for very long buildings to break them up into smaller massings. But again, we don't want to sort of chop up the buildings too much into smaller pieces and believe the longer facades on corridors, if they're articulated properly, can be um, contributive to a dynamic streetscape. So the rear step backs, this is where obviously the buildings will be more impactful to the neighbors. And we're carefully looking at how these buildings may step down. Um, uh, the intention is that we want to be able, you know, for developers to have typical double-loaded um, units along the corridor. So that's in the range of 65 feet. If you look at a typical 100-foot deep lot, that'd be 65%. But then we're suggesting there may be a step down between that 65% and the 25% rear yard to sort of modulate the scale between uh, the taller buildings and the lower existing neighborhoods. And we're also looking at to uh, standardize things like uh, setbacks on um, roof decks as well as matching light wells. Then rear yard, rear yard is the one most commonly sought uh, waiver for state density bonus projects. Um, and it's one item we've gotten a lot of feedback from the development community, particularly architects. Um, talking about how it can be restrictive. So we're looking at that data to see if we can sort of address that in the standards. So currently we're looking, um, you know, what is currently in NC districts is a 25% rear yard um, with a, a one-story podium allowed to extend the full depth of the lot. And then to allow for more flexibility, um, developers for corner, deeper corner lots can choose to do an L-shaped configuration. Um, so this sort of puts the massing against the massing of the homes and preserves uh, the mid-block open space by locating that rear yard um, in alignment um, with that. And then there are some instances where we may consider sort of stepping down in the corridor. Um, one of the main conditions is where you have smaller homes siding up onto the corridor. You know, while, while those homes will be rezoned and potentially redeveloped, um, they're, you know, the potential for presenting tall blank walls that sort of um, side right up to rear yards is a, can be an uncomfortable um, 
conditions. So what we're suggesting there may be a little step down there, which provides more exposure for the units and some relief to the rear yards. And large sites, this is very much, um, these are very much in development, but there are some very large sites um, in the plan area. So we want to uh, make sure that when these are developed, that they're broken in down into appropriate block sizes that are consistent with the neighborhood and don't present very long walking distances um, for both people within the development and for neighbors around it. So we'll look at lock coverage limits, maximum block face dimensions, and requiring mid-block um, alleys. In addition to that, for um, buildings taller than 85 feet, we will be developing some standards that um, may include uh, mass reductions and tower separations and things like that. So moving on to architecture, um, as mentioned, uh, facade articulation is something that uh, we feel is very important. Um, and uh, you know, we know that these projections and recessions from the facade are what creates a very rich textural quality and it sort of identifies buildings as residential. Um, so again, there will be different, several different ways that these standards could be met. For example, it might be a major um, projection or recession, such as a bay window, a balcony, or a terrace um, that's repeated um, along the facade at regular intervals. Or another might just be a consistent treatment of the facade, which may be deeply recessed windows, um, uh, a facade texture with a very deep relief to it. Could be sunshades, fins, louvers, other types of projections that are continually spaced across the facade. Um, so we think we can really achieve this um, pretty well at the standards. And then another one is a ground floor. Obviously, this is where the Pedestrian interacts with the building. It's what they, they see most. So uh, we want to make sure that some of the standard elements of storefront design are incorporated into these. And these include things like uh, bulkheads, uh, transom windows, uh, opportunities for putting three-dimensional signage and so forth. Um, we basically want to present or prevent having just blank facades or just you know sheer glass facades don't, pedest don't address a pedestrian at all. And then looking at the ground floor residential, um, you know, we know that this uh, provides activation to the public realm and streetscape and benefits the units. So most units uh, shall have entries from the sidewalk and they'll include elements such as a land recessed with a landscape strip. Um, raised entries that are recessed and really give a um, prominence to the entries along the street. And then again, fenestration, how windows are, treatment, are treated are essential to overall building quality. Um, so things that sort of creating a shadow line, uh, mop operable windows and so forth will be important as well. So next steps for the objective design standards are we're continuing to update them and incorporate the latest feedback from what we hear from you, the public, and from the stakeholders. Um, so we'll ha be having a second meeting with stakeholders shortly and uh, draft the standards and ultimately um, have them for adoption. So thank you. And I'll hand it back to Lisa for overall next steps. Thank you.
sorry if I could get the slide back on. I just have one last slide. I know we're at time, uh, but we just wanted to run through kind of the upcoming milestones. Um, so uh, we are continuing to do outreach. Uh, we're still in phase two, and so we have some events planned. Um, we have our phase two survey, um, and then a, and also a small business survey. Both are live on our website through December 15th. Uh, we also have a webinar that same week on December 13th. All of that can be found on the website. Um, and we are continuing to do community conversations, and that won't end with phase two. We will continue to meet with any group that wants to invite us um, throughout the adoption process, um, and you can contact us through the website. Um, and then in terms of our hearings here, um, you have um, uh, before you um, an, a number of related hearings in the coming weeks. So, of course, next week is the state housing laws and the policy and practices review. Um, and then two weeks from now uh, is the tenant protections hearing. Um, and then um, we are starting to plan for additional informational hearings for this, um, for the rezoning um, early next year and as, as needed. Um, and so with that, um, we just want to thank everyone who's participated so far. We want to thank all of you for, for your feedback. Um, we, we definitely want to get this right and um, are looking forward to taking the proposal through the next stage and refining it with your, with your um, support and collaboration. Thank you. Okay, if that concludes staff presentation, we should take public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no members of the public in the chambers coming forward, let's go to our remote callers. Again, I mean, with speak. Speak would like to thank Director Hillis for participating in the open house on November 15th at the County Fair Building in Golden Gate Park. Speak would also like to thank Director Hillis for confirming that the department does not intend to turn Ocean Beach into Miami Beach. Speak would urge that this be memorialized in an official policy statement. Speak would again like to thank Director Hillis for clarifying that the department does see grocery store sites as housing opportunity sites. Uh, there is still one area which needs clarification. There was inconsistency among staff on the issue of greenways. There was consistency on the fact that there would be no proposed upzoning and housing on the following greenways, Sunset Boulevard, Park Presidio, and Junipero Serra. The inconsistency is regarding the Brotherhood Way Greenway with a lack of clarity if there is to be no proposal for upzoning and housing on both sides of the Brotherhood Way Greenway, or if there is a proposal for upzoning and housing on one side of Brotherhood Way Greenway. Speak would appreciate a clarification on this issue. Thank you. Hello. Uh, <clears throat> This is Christopher Roach uh, with the um, Public Policy and Advocacy Committee of the AIA San Francisco, um, just uh, voicing our support for this um, rezoning effort. Uh, really commend the department and all their outreach um, and uh, you know, supportive of uh, all the recommendations and, and studies uh, that have been uh, put before you. We're especially appreciative of uh, Trent and the, um, the group that's looking at objective standards and uh, including the architecture and design community 
in um, reviewing and refining those. Um, and happy to see some of our um, comments and um, recommendations um, are being uh, starting to be incorporated. So we just uh, encourage uh, that dialogue to continue and um, really uh, support this entire effort. So thank you very much. Okay, last call for public comment on this item. Seeing no additional requests to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you. Great. Um, thank you, staff, for a very robust proposal and all the work that's gone into creating it. I was able to go to one of the open houses, and it's just really great to see just so many folks um, out and giving their input and giving their feedback. I also want to thank everyone who participated. It was really stunning reading the staff report and just um, I don't have the page right in front of me, but I think there were walks, there were surveys, there's community meetings, there are ongoing survey, there's a new survey now. Um, it's just such robust and diverse outreach. There were focus groups. I mean, it's just really tremendous. So um, thank you staff for putting this together, but also thanks to anybody who is listening or watching or watches this later who did give us um, their thoughts or their opinion or even a moment of your time to think about the future of the city and how we do build housing uh, for those who are living here now and for future residents. So it's just, it's really, really remarkable. Um, and so I think the great thing is that what we're seeing today and what we will see as this continues to evolve is really not just um, one person's idea or even a small group of people, but really trying to take all of this information and then to turn it into something tangible um, to meet our, our housing element requirements. So I know we're, we're not to the end yet. I think we're in maybe it's a, we're in phase two, heading into phase three um, and, and coming uh, to a close perhaps early next year. That said, um, I do just have a few comments. The one comment um, about the maps, I would say, is I, I understand the rationale a little bit, but I was disappointed to see the buffer zones um, eliminated in part, you know, even thinking about what we just talked about today of uh, the current fourplex and sixplex legislation. It's relatively new. The economy is terrible. Interest rates are awful, and everything's very expensive to build. There's a lot of reasons why people aren't building um, things, but that one-year ownership requirement does mean that we really don't have a true fourplex, sixplex program that's accessible to any property owner in the city. It's only accessible to certain property owners, and I would, again, repeat that if you cannot afford to live somewhere else while your house is under construction, then you actually, it would be very difficult to take advantage of the fourplex um, and sixplex legislation as a homeowner. So I was hopeful that the buffer zones with the density decontrol allow us to have a similar building envelope that is akin to what is in those streets and nearby, but again, having more density. So we're not changing the heights, we're just allowing more units within the existing envelopes. I really am not sure why we would need to get rid of that. Is it the concerns people raise about traffic or other things? I just, I'm still not understanding. The, the rationale that was provided for getting rid of the buffer zones, to me, didn't add up to needing to get rid of them. So I don't know, Ms. Chen, if you want to speak to that or who would like to address that? Sure. Um, you know, I, I would say we're not shutting the door on that, the idea that we're going to have zoning changes in those areas. Um, I, I, what I would say is that for this phase of the rezoning, we want to prioritize the opportunity sites, right? Um, so there are going to be future opportunities to continue to look off the corridors. I think to your point, you know, we haven't had a lot of projects off of the corridors. There haven't been a, a ton of fourplex projects. I think we're continuing to kind of look through typologies. We're going to be looking at, you know, things like 
um, pre-approved designs or things like that that you know could kind of make some of those more possible. And alongside that, I think we want to look more at the typologies like the density controlled buffer areas that um, might be possible. Um, and, and actually, as part of the um, financial feasibility analysis, we are going to be looking at some of those small sites, um, including potentially looking at you know what um, what typologies would work in 40 feet and how they might compare from a financial feasibility perspective. Okay. Did yeah. you get a lot of feedback? I mean, I certainly read the feedback. I, I think it's not new, not a newsflash. Many folks like lower heights, folks who are homeowners and older liked lo lower buildings, folks who are younger and renters liked were more okay with taller buildings. That's a very gross summary. But is there any other reason from the community feedback to get rid of the density decontrol in the buffer zones? You know, I think it really, it was a range. Um, I, I don't know that, I mean, so I think there were some of those kind of demographic um, shifts and um, differences in opinions. Uh, but, you know, even, for example, in our focus groups, we heard people really grappling with, you know, do we want the buffers or not, you know? And um, so I, I wouldn't say that there was kind of a clear consensus, um, just that there was a lot of interest in it. Um, and, you know, I think we as a department still want to look at those areas in the future, but, um, you know, I've kind of chosen to prioritize the corridors. Certainly. That makes sense. I, I, I will say I, I think that for my part, I would like to see them added back in or, or continue, continue to look at in part because, one, we just need every opportunity to build housing. So it's like all of the above, you know, whatever we can do, let's do it. Two, it provides a little bit of A-B testing, quite frankly, to compare those areas with the areas that don't have density control and have the current fourplex and sixplex legislation and see what does the market want to provide, what can it provide. And even though right now things are not financially feasible, I think uh, at least earlier this year, it's like nothing's financially feasible. High rises, low rise, mid rise, it didn't really matter. I think there was one typology of building that we found was feasible. So I don't think financial feasibility today should inhibit our vision for the next decades of the city and what's permissible within, you know, allowing zoning. So I, and also, um, you know, we, we can't all, always take more bites of the apple. I mean, how many bites are people taking at the constraints reduction ordinance um, that still has yet to be passed? Uh, but I think if we can try to do it once, I think that helps create clarity and also, you know, less work for staff. So that's my two cents. Um, the only other thing I would say for objective standards, really happy to see that, you know, that I've been talking about them a lot. So I'm so, so happy to see them so thoroughly and um, beautifully um, illustrated. One of the questions I had, kind of minor, is for the ground floor uh, residential entries, which I think we may be seeing more of as folks may choose not to have an active ground floor be a commercial space. They may choose it to be a residential um, space. If we have allowance when there is an outside entrance to have some of those B0 entry for ADA purposes, because I know, you know even having a few stairs for older people can be a barrier. And so I just, I don't know if we've given any thought to that. And the design standards of letting some, and I know part of the, the rub is having that stoop is a little more privacy, but then if you, again, can't take stairs, it kind of forecloses um, an opportunity to live there. And then if you, you can certainly have maybe an elevator access, but again, uh, for folks who have mobility issues, it can be nice to have that entry. So I don't know if that's something you looked at, Trent, or could consider um, allowing some entries to be like zero barrier entries for sure. the residential. Yeah, we did provide an option for it. Um in the draft that I think you have in front of you that would allow for at-grade entries. They would have to just be recessed further, right? Because you don't have that raised stoop then, so you need a better buffer. Okay, great. Um, but uh, yeah, we did. We did think about that. And then stay here for two more questions. One was around, we had a lot of discussion, especially during the, the throes of COVID around um, balconies, um, sometimes requiring or asking for them to be included. Um, of course, I think we fixed the challenge of them not counting towards private open space. 
earlier, or maybe we talked about it because part of the rub was that they didn't get credit for having small balconies towards private open space because they didn't have the right measurements. So I'm wondering if that's something we can address in the standards and also in the code if we still haven't addressed that either. I don't know if we... I don't know if the commission wants to require balconies or some percentage of units to have um, private open space, but it's something we've talked about a lot, and I don't know if you all have thought about that further in this discussion. Um, I understand it's being addressed in the code, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. I was like, I know we talked about it at some point. I just couldn't remember when. And the last thing was for the blank wall, definitely appreciate having it down to 55 feet, but then we still have a 55-foot blank wall, and so I was curious if we thought about whether adding texture or some other objective standard that could be applied. I don't want to just say, oh, it has to have a mural. I, I think that's maybe not the right direction, but something to make it a little bit more visually interesting um, sure. in addition to the step down. So that's just my only comment on that. But otherwise, great work. Thank you so much. And thanks to all the architects who have been giving input and feedback um, to those standards. Thank With that, you. I'm going to call on Commissioner Imperial. Thank you again um, for the staff and for doing this extensive um, committee outreach and engagement. Um, there's a lot of attendees, looks like, that has been done so far. Um, I do have a question in terms of the objective design standards in that, um, in that engagement. Um, in terms of, like, um, it says that there are about 19 stakeholders architecture. I, as part of the, let's say, focus groups or committee conversations, how's that community feedback also in terms of the objective design standards. Um, so the the workshop that Trent um, referenced was, you know, geared towards uh, professionals in the building industry, so architects mm -hmm. and um, and builders. Um, so you know, we haven't had in any other events that, or we haven't had other focus groups uh, for non business or non builder, the non building community. Um, but we have had um, the objective design standards at our open houses, and then kind of through our focus groups, we have kind of discussed just the neighborhood feel and people's concerns about as we bring new housing in. Um, so, you know, I think people do care about the, the design of, of their community. Um, I think we, we could go back to some of the feedback from the open houses and just see, um, you know, kind of the reception that people had. Um, you know, some of the terms that you saw um, that Trent presented, Trent presented, you know, is a very technical language. So we've also been just challenged with how we present it in a way that's very accessible. Um, but I think it's been helpful, especially to have kind of the vis visualizations and the models so people can, can kind of get a sense of what this might look like. And there's still ongoing engagement by winter to spring yes. is already the proposal they're um, already formulating to come here to the Planning Commission. Or is that um, the winter to spring, is there, what is the timeline for committee engagement still? Yeah, yeah, so we still have um, a webinar coming up, um, and the survey is out there too, and it actually has some questions about objective design standards, so we're continuing to get feedback. Um, but we're also happy to meet with any um, neighborhood groups that want to mm -hmm. dive deeper into the objective design standards themselves. Yeah. Um, the presentation on the objective designs were, were good. Um, I would suggest to also present it to neighborhood you know, a residents or association or business um, just to get more variety of you know, um, information when it comes to objective design standards. Um, I do agree in many of the you know, of the design, but the community does care about, you know, what the 
well, what their neighborhood will look like. And I think this is the kind of conversation we had in, you know, when how do you explain technical terms to, you know, to an ordinary resident? And I think having that those visualization will really help. Um, so perhaps in, you know, community presentation, have those more, um, you know, um, visualizations and whether whether they can play around with, with those ideas as well. So just something to think about as part of the engagement. Thank you. Great, thank you. Commissioner Braun? Yes, uh, first of all, thanks so much for all the community engagement work that's been going on. And unfortunately, I had conflicts during both of the, um, the workshops, but it was great to see that they were well attended. And uh, I know how much work those take to put on. I just put one on two weeks ago for a community I'm working in. And yeah, kudos. <laughs> Um, so let's see, I, I have first of all a question about the, the part of the rezoning that there was a comment that the expanding zo expanded zone capacity and the heights that are being uh, contemplated, that this accounts for when state density bonus projects might be proposed along these corridors. I, I, I believe that was basically the gist of it, like we're trying to account for what would happen if a number of these projects are state density bonus projects. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? So, um, so my, my question is, my, my first question is, you know, from the perspective of meeting our uh, identification of opportunity sites and zone capacity um, under the state law, under our requirements, um, do those units count towards our zone capacity if we have assumed that the developers would need to use a state density bonus to get those units built or, or a local density bonus either way? Hi, Commissioners. Joshua Switsky with planning staff. Yes, they can count. Um, I mean, the standard is, uh, is there substantial evidence that the city can put forward to show that, that there's a track record and a reasonable expectation that these units would get built under the agglomeration of all of these rules and programs. I mean, for instance, our existing sites analysis just on our existing zoning accounted for state density bonus and the state was happy to accept that because we have a track record of showing that all these projects are getting entitled and, and built. And so that, yeah, that's the basis. It's sort of a reasonableness evidence based thing. So yes, all, so all, through all of these tools and all of the capacity that we estimate, that's the sort of totality of it. Awesome. And, and then on the, you know, the actual obligation is 34,000 units uh, and we're overshooting that. I'm curious if this were, has anyone ever looked at if this were just to be built out as base, um, the base projects, which I know is not really what's happening, but if they're built as, as the base projects, will we still hit the 34,000 zone capacity? We're doing, I don't have a, a specific answer to, to the numbers, but we are look, taking different cuts of it. Uh, you know, if we only assumed no one did the local program and did the state density bonus. What would that get us? You know, so we're, we're, we're looking at it in all these layers. I think we're pretty confident that we will more than meet the, you know, the minimum numbers. And, you know, we think with all of this together, yeah, we're, we're well over 50,000. So we think, you know, there's, there's substantial headroom there. Um, and just to, just to put another finer point on it, the, the, the state, um, to account for the uncertainty of, of development, the state encourages a 15% minimum sort of overzone, that, and that's the way that the, the rules sort of encourage you to account for that kind of uncertainty. Um, and so we've already baked that into these numbers. So the 36,000 already includes that 15% overzone. Um, so if we were just strictly rezoning for our gap, it actually would be like 20,000 something. Um, so we're already accounting for that, and then we're shooting even on top of that. So we're 
our current numbers are sort of, you know, more 30% or more in excess of that. So, you know, we have some, some headroom to account for, some, you know, a certain amount of uncertainty. Great, and I appreciate that because, uh, you know, I think that we do need to have a lot of tools in play in order to hit our, our housing production targets. And so I see that ensuring the zoning has that extra room is, a, you know, an important part of that, among many other things. Um, I think the... There was a, a there was a comment in the staff report that at our zoning program hearing on the 14th, uh, you know, there's a reference to the fact that there's a lot of ministerial approval uh, via local and state pathways. I think we're going to get some more information on that with our state legislative update at our next hearing, but then also on the 14th. I, I think I'm just, I think with these next two hearings are great opportunities for us to actually start to get our arms around the many ministerial pathways that currently exist and are about to exist and how they might interact. So I just, uh, I would find it helpful uh, at both those hearings uh, to, to learn a little bit more about how, all, how projects could actually move forward uh, under the various pathways that are available and all the new ministerial pathways and existing ones. So just a note for those hearings. Um, otherwise, uh, comment on the maps, uh, the zoning maps, uh, I was a little disappointed also to see the shift away from the um, the buffer zones and the density control in some of those neighborhoods. And I, I do wonder if maybe there is, uh, it's worth taking another look at that just to see if there are particular areas along corridors or particular neighborhoods where it might make more sense. Uh, I know that we had a pretty ambitious version of that in the you know one of two maps that were being vetted over the summer. And I just think it might be worth uh, examining how else uh, how the density control could be put back in place in maybe areas where it makes sense or there's there's more receptiveness to it potentially uh, otherwise on the on the objective design standards um, i'm glad i agree with the idea that there should be a lot of engagement around those objective design standards uh, i also am glad that we're working with that sort of focus group that technical group because what we select for those objective design standards could make a really big difference in what it takes to build a building and the cost to build a building. And I don't want them to be so onerous or have such, for example, sometimes articulation of facade can actually add very substantial cost to a building. Um, so uh, I think there's, as always, uh, some trade-offs to be considered in these decisions, even for a, uh, especially for objective design standards. And then lastly, I'll just say, I, I really appreciate the visualizations. I do think these visualizations are helpful for me. They'll be helpful for communities to vet them. Um, you know, what we're aiming towards right now is going in the right direction as far as I'm concerned with these step backs and step downs. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of larger apartment buildings built, for example, along Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley recently that also butt up against, uh, they abut the uh, single family homes in some cases. And I've seen these uh, setbacks and step downs in play over there, and uh, they, it is possible to have a very thoughtful and successful um, means of, of still respecting the adjacent um, homes in some of these residential areas. So yeah, it's, it's great to see. I'm, I'm glad to see the direction that that's going. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Diamond? Thank you. I have a number of questions and comments for Ms. Chen. Um, and I wonder if you might put the zoning map up while we're talking, because that'll be helpful.
Thank you. So um, I too want to um, really give you and the rest of the staff a round of applause. This is an incredible amount of work um, in distilling an enormous amount of information and a incredibly thorough process um, in order to get to the stage that we're at now. And you know, no matter how many suggestions or comments you know we offer to you, um, I want to start with just um, really uh, Director Hillis, how proud you should be of the department for everything that's been accomplished to yeah. this date. And many of them are here, too, so yeah. everybody should wave. Hi. <laughs> yeah, so really, a round of applause. Um, I, um, I want to offer a few comments and thoughts. I feel like one of the most significant achievements has been bringing along the west side to the point where they understand, residents and owners understand, that there's a need to really upzone the west side and to build buy-in into that process that came through not only you know, offering options along the way, but all of your various methods of feedback and an opportunity for multiple opportunities for review. And to that end, I feel like um, there is a sense, at least from, I live on the west side, from many of the people that I have talked to, that this map um, is beginning to represent um, a good compromise for all of the concerns uh, that were raised. And to that end, I would feel um, like we were backtracking <coughs> if we decided at this point to add in more buffer zones. Um, it was really two different concepts that were presented up front, um, which is one that had buffer zones everywhere and the other said, let's really try to concentrate development on the commercial corridors. And it feels like you mostly went with the commercial corridors with a few areas of buffer zones left in. And so I would not be supportive of adding back in more buffer zones at this point because I feel like what you've got represents you know, the input for all the people you talk to. And I would hate to see people feel like um, they gave their input, they got a zoning map, it sort of is getting close to what they want, and suddenly we're backtracking and saying, oh, by the way, we actually really like the idea of buffer zones, and we decided to add that back in again. So I would be very opposed um, to the suggestions that were offered by some of the other commissioners. But while in theory it might be a good idea, I think there is a general sense that concentrating the development by having higher heights on the commercial corridors is generally the way to go. So um, I just will pass along um, that wow. thought, which is different than the other commissioners, but I feel reflects um, input from the people that you have reached out to um, on the west side and, and is the basis for a lot of buy-in um, from west side residents. Um, secondly, I agree that the visuals are spectacular. They really help people understand um, what it's going to look and feel like. Um, and it really shows mid-sized development for the most part. Um, and, you know, more visuals are always great. So I think that's a wonderful direction and I would keep pursuing that. Um, I also think the process by which you're developing the objective design standards is terrific. Um, I think setbacks and stepbacks, which are used elsewhere, are really, really helpful in helping blend into the existing um, more modest um, heights that are going to be adjacent. And so I would encourage you to keep exploring with the design committee the use of setbacks and stepbacks. 
Um, and I absolutely second Commissioner Tanner's suggestion that you take a look at the requirement for the 55-foot blank wall. I wouldn't want to look at a 55-foot concrete wall behind me. I don't think any of us would. And we need some kind of modulation, green wall, something. Um, or it needs to be lower down. But I, 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 that's a part of the design I'm not happy with at the moment. Um, so um, I was struck by um, the comment um, that precedes the map that said that you tried to make sure you weren't concentrating the development in any one area, but we're trying to spread it out evenly all throughout the housing opportunity area. And that makes a great deal of sense to me. But in contrast to that, I look at the two-block wide corridor that goes from Arguello to the ocean between California and Geary. Um, and that looks like an area that is getting a massive amount um, of new development. You've got 85 feet on Geary. You've got 120-foot zones on the corner of Geary and Funston and Geary and Arguello. You've got, this is an area where you preserve density decontrol between Geary and Clement. You have a 65-foot all the way zone all the way along Clement, um, and you have um, an 85-foot zone along California. And when I look at the overall spread of development across the map, with the exception of the Van Ness Corridor, this feels like an area that is taking perhaps more than its share. And that may or may not be um, a good idea, but I feel like that should only be done in close conjunction with Supervisor Chan. I had an opportunity to speak with her at some length yesterday because um, I'm so concerned about um, this particular issue and in particular along Clement Street, which I'll get to in a moment. And I really feel like um, if we're going to proceed with that particular scenario, it needs to be done with the supervisor who represents this district, who, based upon my conversation with her yesterday, seems to know the owner of every property along here, what their plans are for the property, how it's likely to develop. And I, I would feel a lot better about this um, if I knew that she looked at this and said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I would rather not wait until it goes to the Board of Supervisors. I would rather that we were getting her input before it comes back to us so that if changes need to be made, we get to see those um, at, at the commission. Um, and in particular, my primary concern um, is not the 85-foot height on Geary. That makes tremendous sense to me. My guess is that's the least controversial aspect of anything you're proposing on Geary. It's not even with the density decontrol de zone. Um, it's not the height on California, but it is the 65-foot height on Clement, particularly in the area that goes from Arguello to Funston. That is um, a really interesting cultural district um, with um, shops that are geared. Um, well, there is a very large Asian-owned, Asian-operated, um, uh, Asian um, customer base in that area. And I have a lot of concern about what happens when we rezone to 65 feet and new buildings are built. And yes, we can, you know, come up with some kind of compensation to a relocation, you know, to people who are lost. But what does it do to the fabric of the neighborhood when you take out um, people who are used to lower cost rent and are offering grocery stores and uh, hair salons and restaurants that cater 
to the particular neighborhood when they can no longer afford to be there. This is not a cultural district. Maybe it should be, and I think that's worthy of some exploration. Um, and I, I don't want to limit this just to Clement Street. There may be other areas that, as we go through this process, should also be you know, uh, given that same level of review. I happen to know this area best because I walk down this strip four times a week with my dog. Um, so I you know, know it sort of shop by shop. And every time I do, I think about what's it going to feel like um, if there's six, it's not the 65 foot height that bothers me, it's the displacement of the current tenants and how that might change sort of the organic and synergistic nature of how the neighborhood operates. And I feel like that's a super important conversation to have with Supervisor Chen. So I would um, urge you to do that. Um, and those are my comments. And again, thank you. Thank you. I do want to raise one question which came up through public comment, which was um, clarifying about Brotherhood Way. My understanding part of the Brotherhood Way upzoning, and it, uh, speakers were talking about the Greenway, is around the ability under state law, as well as kind of us adding a layer to that of congregations already to use their parking or existing facilities to become housings. So I think we're trying to pick up on that. But I don't know if you could address um, those comments just around what exactly, and, and I think that's why it is on the one side, um, as we see in the proposed map. Yes, certainly. So um, that section of Brotherhood Way was actually added before SB4, which is the recent state legislation, which is enabling, um, you know, uh, streamlined process and a little bit greater density on religious institution sites. Um, so it was actually, um, uh, to your point, Commissioner Diamond, it was uh, a site that was identified by Supervisor Melgar as, you know, a, a great potential area to look at additional zoning. It's a very wide street. The street itself needs a lot of improvements. We actually did a walking tour with the supervisor in that section, uh, but you could see um, definitely a future that includes um, housing. You know, there's a lot of large sites there, and some of those institutions, uh, religious institutions, you know, maybe um, are struggling a little bit um, with, with their membership too. So, um, and then in terms of the other side, um, where the Greenway is, you know, it's, it's not in our plans to rezone. Um, you know, I think there have been conversations about that section of Brotherhood Way in the past. I know CTA has been um, looking at, you know, different um, street configurations and such there too. So, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, that is maybe a longer term conversation, but it, it does fall, you know, outside of our area as well. And one last question for you on Lincoln Avenue. Is there a reason why Lincoln is not upzoned or whether it's, it's density decontrolled, but there's not additional height that's allowed? I just I think nearer to the park, putting more people nearer to the park is a great asset and a great amenity. And so it seems like a little bit of missed opportunity to not allow more residences next to Golden Gate Park. Yes. Um, so uh, Lincoln Ave was not on the original EIR analysis, and so we are somewhat bound by that analysis. We are going to be doing additional um, analysis and, and likely an addendum or some other um, document. Um, uh, so, you know, that's kind of where part of the rationale for doing the density decontrol, because that way we're not actually changing the building envelope um, and not, you know, um, raising additional shadow um, concerns. Um, Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I don't see any other comments or questions from commissioners, so I think we're concluded with this item. Very good, commissioners. That will place us on item 18 for the UC College of Law informational presentation. And I think maybe we'll use this opportunity to take a break for no. five minutes. Try to, no. be, try to be efficient, commissioners. We're doing pretty good on time.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Okay, commissioners, welcome back to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, November 30th, 2023. We left off under your regular <coughs> calendar on item 18 for the UC College of the Law informational presentation. Mr. Sider. Uh, President Tanner, commissioners, good afternoon. Dan Sider with Planning Department staff. <clears throat> Um, just a very quick introduction to, um, to this next item, which is an informational, as you just heard from the secretary. Uh, it's an informational on all the work that UC Law, which was formerly UC Hastings College of the Law, uh, all the work that uh, they've done to plan and now begin to build uh, what they call their academic village. Uh, because UC Law is a state entity, uh, the city's rules do not apply. Um, this is not unlike SF State. This is not unlike UCSF. Um, because we're dealing with a state-level actor, Hastings, uh, excuse me, UC Law just isn't uh, subject to our local land use controls. <clears throat> having said that, having said that, uh, for years UC Law has partnered with our department, with the city, um, and even without a kind of a formal regulatory relationship, um, we've worked together to advance our shared priorities. Um, and that's kind of what today's hearing is, is about. Um, we're joined by Rhiannon uh, Baylord, uh, UC Law's COO. Um, she's gonna tell us about what Hastings has built by way of facilities and by way of housing um, and in terms of the general campus. Um, we're also joined by Anand Singh from Local 2. Uh, Local 2 is one of the college's uh, development partners. Uh, also here today is David Seward. David is the longstanding CFO of UC Law. Uh, his efforts really laid the groundwork for a lot of what we're going to talk about, for all of what we're going to talk about uh, here today. Um, commissioners, again, this is a voluntary informational hearing. You don't need to take any action. We're certainly eager to get your feedback, to get your comments. Uh, and Rhiannon and her team will certainly stick around to answer any questions when the presentation is done. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Good afternoon, honorable commissioners. My name is Rhiannon Baylord, as Mr. Sider said, and I'm the chief operating officer at UC Law San Francisco, and it's a pleasure to be here with you all today. Uh, as Dan said, I'm gonna be talking about our long-range campus plan, the progress that we've made on it. The last time we were before this esteemed body was in 2017, pursuant to a CEQA process at that time. We provided an update to you all, and what I wanna do is speak about what we've done since that time and what we have on the horizon. And I also want to provide an overview of what we call our academic village. But before I do that, I do want to provide just a little bit of background. Uh, as Mr. Sider said, of course, we are no longer called UC Hastings Law. We are now UC Law San Francisco. Uh, that name change happened in January of this year. And we are, though, the same institution that was founded in 1878 as a standalone law school. We are an affiliate of the UC system, but we are not part of the UC system. We have our own board of directors. We do not roll up through the office of the president. And just from a demographic perspective, I've got some information there. But just with respect to our students, we have 1,200 students on our campus. 1,100 of those are our own UC law students. And then we have other academic village partners that you see there that offer academic programs on our campus. 
So the last time we came to you, we spoke about our academic village as part of our long-range campus plan. The academic village is the idea of a shared campus platform. Uh, there's, of course, been discussion in the press about having a uh, UC campus in downtown San Francisco, and, and good news, that there is one that is here, and, and we are looking for additional partnerships as well. The idea is that as a standalone law school, uh, we have limited resources, we have limited ability given the number of students that we have. But what we do have is we have incredible real estate in an incredible location a block away uh, from where we all stand today. And so what we thought about, and CFO Seward and, and our chancellor specifically thought about, is what can we do uh, to leverage that real estate? What can we do to ensure that we address the housing crisis that our students are facing along with the rest of the city? And what can we do to replace aging facilities? The idea was to capitalize upon efficiencies, bring together other institutions to share our campus. This is from an academic perspective. This is from a residential perspective. And the idea behind it for us, of course, is the benefit of being able to update those aging buildings and provide those amenities for our students. But the benefit for the other institutions, of course, is that they get to have a footprint or address their housing crisis right here in San Francisco without the large capital upfront costs. So going back to the last time we were here in 2017, uh, we had three major projects that were before uh, us at that time. We have completed two of them, and I'll go a little bit more in detail about this, and one of them is about to commence construction. What has changed, as Mr. Sider said, is since that time as part of our long-range campus plan is progress on those projects, as well as a new site located at 201 to 247 Golden Gate Avenue, which is the Unite Here Local 2 property. The idea there is that Unite Here Local 2 needs a new union hall, and through an option agreement that we have with them, we would develop a new union hall with them, have a master ground lease with them. They would always continue to own the property, but we would then have the ability to develop additional academic village facilities and resources. So we'll get to that a little bit more as we near the end of the presentation, but just to give you an update on what we've done, uh, as you can see from the slides here, uh, this is our new academic building, 333 Golden Gate. The entirety of our long-range campus plan was planned so that ultimately we would be able to increase housing without displacing a single resident. And we have done that. We've tripled housing without displacing a single resident. <clears throat> In order to do that, we needed to build a new academic building so that we could tear down our existing academic building build new residential, and then when we finish that residential, move our existing residents into the new residential, and then renovate our existing residential. And the good news is we're well underway. This was opened on March 16th, 2020, the same day the city shut down. It was, it was empty for 18 months. Uh, but we were able to, uh, of course, come back and utilize it. It's a beautiful space that we have here. And uh, once we completed that, we were able to move to the campus housing building that I mentioned. What's incredible about this project is it has 656 housing units, uh, and it has the ability for us to provide residential for not just our own community, but all of these institutions that you see represented here. And so this is that shared campus platform academic village that we just, that I mentioned at the beginning. The 35% that you see here, we do have a 
20-year occupancy agreement with UCSF, and so they have taken 35% of those units, and all of the other institutions come to us through referrals directly from the institution or from the students and professionals themselves who have interest. And so just a couple, not to bore everybody with images, we're excited about these photos, of course, um, but we've got three, level, three podium levels, uh, we've got large classrooms, 200, 100, 100% classrooms, a 400-seat auditorium, community amenity spaces, a dog run. But what we have on offer as part of our academic village that is different from a student from another institution going out to the marketplace is that you also get access to the entirety of our campus. You have the ability to go to the library, the quad, the dining commons, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the entire campus is on offer for any institution within the academic village. And so here's an image of our studios and efficiencies, which are the primary focus in, in the new building. As we complete that building, and again, that opened on August 3rd, 2023, so August of this year, we now have emptied all of the residents out of that building, relocated them into the new residential, and have emptied this existing residential tower. And so that's how we've been able to, again, uh, bring on new residential without displacing a single resident. Uh, the plan here is to bring on an additional 275 beds. So between the new building that we just opened and the renovation of this building, we will have approximately 1,000 beds that are on offer for our own community as well as other institutions of higher education. Uh, this building, the tower, was originally a hotel and church uh, constructed in 1929. We took it over in 1980 as campus housing. Uh, and now, after 40 years of incredible use, it's time to do a comprehensive seismic retrofit and and then a subsequent phase will be to uh, add additional beds and additional academic and programmatic space. That actually demo abatement starts next month, and we anticipate reopening in 2027. So this is just an image of the church. It doesn't look like this today, but a potential for uh, an academic village partner. Um, so finally, uh, the project that uh, we are adding to our long-range campus plan is the Unite Here Local 2 project. Uh, from a CEQA perspective, we have completed uh, the NOP. We've gone through the scoping meeting, uh, working on technical review now. We anticipate that the draft EIR will will be out for circulation in the spring, uh, and we look to certification happening in the spring and or the summer of 2024. And what I want to do is provide President Anand Singh of Unite Here Local 2 the opportunity to speak to uh, the benefit of the joining of the Academic Village as well as the need for the Union Hall. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioners. Uh, I'm here representing the members of my union, Unite Here Local 2. We have 15,000 members in San Francisco, San Mateo counties, and the East and North Bay. Uh, we represent hotel workers, food service workers, gaming workers in the region. Um, and uh, you know, we're proud to be a part of this project. Um, members of our union have been proud to call our union hall home for decades. Uh, they're in the Tenderloin on the 200 block of Golden Gate. We own the building, we own the property. Um, it is in need of serious repair. It's been, it's a very old building, over 100 years old. And um, we are, while we're a proud union, our members you know, have struggled over the years to, 
you know, carve out a standard of living so that working people in hotels, hotel housekeepers and dishwashers can afford, you know, to live in this city, to put away money for their kids and, you know, send them to college to put food on the table. Um, we are no, by no means a wealthy organization. And so the ability for our union to develop a union hall um, is, has been a very difficult and elusive prospect. This project for us is a real opportunity not only to develop a new hall and retain ownership of the land, which is very important to our members, but to do so in partnership with an institution where we've enjoyed a long history and relationship as neighbors um, with some very unique um, opportunities in the future with the community you know, legal services, having some real crossover with the work of our members and their ability to access services. Um, we think this is a great project. Our members voted overwhelmingly uh, within the membership to move forward with the option agreement with UC Law. And we want to thank you for your time and your consideration. Um, we're very excited to move forward on the project. Great, thank you. I'm wondering if there's any particular feedback the college or partners are hoping to get on this project or anything you're hoping the commission can specifically opine on? I mean, we're always happy to receive any feedback. The idea was just to continue to be good partners, keep you apprised of what we're working on, uh, and ensure that you're aware of the CEQA process that we are undertaking. So it was more of an informational item and to answer any questions that you might have. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll go to public comment first, I think, and then uh, see if there's any comments or questions from commissioners. Indeed. Um, for those persons interested to comment, please come forward if you're in the chambers. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no members of the public in the chambers, let's go to our remote caller. Through the chair, you'll have two minutes. This is Sue Hester. I am so happy that this has been the information item that you've heard on what I call Hastings UC Law. We have had as planning commission and as a public years and years of struggle about Academy of Art University who was required to comply with the law and file an institutional master plan, but they didn't. And so it took uh, probably five or six staff members from the planning department to make them comply with the law. And one of their biggest issues was they weren't supplying housing and they weren't even acknowledging they had a requirement to do this. So UC, pardon me, UC Law has done a lot of work that is very good by locking down this area for a UC campus in the middle of San Francisco. I have been involved sidewise with the, H, the here HERE Local 2 uh, getting that site expanded. Um, so HERE and, and UC Law are both taking the slack up to build housing for the entire city. One of the things that is really I pay attention to universities. UC has paid more attention in San Francisco to Dogpatch and this area than it paid in any other areas. Thank you, UC. Thank you, HERE. Thank you for the planning department working with them. It's 
a great, great presentation. Thank you. Bye. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed, and um, this informational matter is now before you. Great, thank you. Uh, it certainly is exciting to see uh, projects going. Um, we're certainly excited about all the progress that's been made and that continues to be made and that you're planning for. seems like a really good partnership that's create, been created, which is very exciting. And of course, to just see more and more students, more activity in this area, more housing. I think definitely joining Ms. Tester and um, thanking the college for providing housing and being really thoughtful about um, creating this academic village, which is an asset to the institutions that you're partnering with, but also really is an asset to the whole city and the region. So really want to just thank you for coming here and um, can't wait to see things. I mean, a long timeline sometimes with these projects, but you know, in a few years, uh, the building will be there and it's uh, very, very exciting. Um, with that, I want to call in Commissioner Koppel. A great looking project. Thanks for all your thoughtful, you know, um, thinking uh, that just results in, in great projects like this. And also wanted to give a personal shout out to Local 2. Uh, very have always been very impressed with how active you guys are and how well you represent your workers many BIPOC and very low-wage workers that are uh, sometimes I think taken for granted and just people don't realize how many things we have uh, to benefit from in this city thanks to the the workers of local too so uh, thrilled for you guys hopefully you can follow in the lead of uh, Larry Mazzola and the plumbers and and gives yourself a nice home. I've, I've been to your current home and uh, just looking forward to, to be invited to the, the new home. And, uh, uh, you know, us in the labor trades with people, you know, we, we have a lot of things working against us with technologies and, and just, you know, people looking at, at costs and, and ways to cut corners and, and stuff. And I'm going to steal a line from the office here and say there's, there's one thing that's never going to go out of, out, out of business, and that's people. So thanks for uh, staying active and keeping the voices alive. Thank you. Commissioner Braun? Yes, uh, I no questions or particular comments other than just to say thank you so much for coming before us and sharing the presentation, providing this update, being such a great partner with the city. Uh, and also, I really appreciate seeing UC Law making such a great commitment to San Francisco, to its facilities in the city with all this additional work, as well as providing additional student housing and adding the vibrancy to this, this part of uh, town. Um, I know a lot of UC Law graduates, my significant other is a, is a UC Law graduate, and uh, certainly there was room for the facilities to be improved. So it's great to see that that process is happening now. Uh, so thank you very much. Great. Commissioner Diamond? Uh, one question and then a comment. Uh, question is, what percentage of your students live on the campus? So currently we have about 250 students that are living on campus and there are 1,100 of our own students. So I can't do math that quickly. I'm looking to our CFO. Well, it's probably understated because it's really consultant. Yeah. Yeah, so we were supposed to open on July 1st. We opened on August 3rd. That was a Herculean effort. We're amazed that we were able to make it right before the semester started, but it was right before the semester started. And so uh, we have currently we're at 60% occupancy within the building, but we're expecting to get up to 100% with year two.
And is it apartment style living or is it dorms? Yes, it is apartment style. And I was trying to go quick. So good. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so our demand analyses, because these are primarily focused on graduate students as well as professionals, was that it was about single occupancy. And so it's largely efficiencies in studios. There's just a handful of one bedrooms and two bedrooms. Right. Is there also a common uh, cafeteria or or your students cooking in their room. They all have their own kitchens. There is a cafe that is opening down on the lower level, but again, they have access to the entirety of the campus and there is um, dining services Monday through Friday across the street. And then of course, being in the Tenderloin, there's so much dining everywhere, but really the primary is the kitchens in each unit. Um, I just wanted to second what um, Commissioner Braun said, that I'm so happy to see you doubling down in your investment in the city, um, especially at this time when we really want um, our institutions and universities and uh, it's just, you're an amazing example um, and you know, congratulations and thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've been here since 1878 and we're, we're committed, so appreciate that. Excellent. Commissioner Imperial. I also want to share um, the same sentiments as other commissioners. And thank you for presenting and being a good partner with the city um, through the UC University. I have a question in the EAR process. Um, does this still have to go through the planning commission or it goes straight to the UC board? It goes, so our um, certifying entity is our UC board of directors, and so the process goes before them. It does not come to planning commission, uh, but we do come to you all sh to share information, not because we have to, but because of our partnership. So if it would be helpful at some point for us to come back um, when we're circulating the EIR, we're always happy to do so. Okay, just asking in mm -hmm. terms of process, because I remember the UCSF Parnassus, or was it Parnassus, um, did come to the planning commission in terms of, I think that was part of the tra transportation. Yeah, and there was yeah. an MOU, but the same process, like we could we could be a commenter, and oftentimes mm -hmm. the planning department kind of organizes the comments from other departments to, you know, to the draft EIR, so we can comment on the EIR, but we're not the agency that certifies. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Did you have something else, Director? Okay. No. Great. Perfect, yeah, great, good, good news story for sure. If there's nothing else, commissioners, we can move on to item 19 for case number 2023-0108130TH for the enforcement penalty guidelines. This is a request for you to adopt factors and criteria. Good afternoon, President Tanner, commissioners, Corey Teague, zoning administrator with the department. I'm also joined by Kelly Wong, our code enforcement manager. Um, so we're in front of you today um, kind of as a follow-up item on a piece of legislation you heard earlier this year, which really kind of upgraded the code enforcement uh, program in the planning code um, in various ways, but um, specifically created some new fees and um, requested that the planning commission within 12 months of that effective date uh, adopt some factors and criteria for consideration for the zoning administrator when implementing those new fees. So just brief background, as I said, this uh, ordinance was before you and earlier this year, um, it resulted in higher daily penalties. It used to be up to $250 a day, now it's up to $1,000 a day. Created some new notices and gave the um, department the ability to record orders of abatement on the property and liens on a property similar to what DBI does 
for unpaid fees. Um, but the big change in that ordinance and the reason we're here today is that it introduced these two new uh, one-time very punitive penalties that you know historically the planning code enforcement program was not punitive. All the potential fees were either cost recovery or penalties to try to bring about abatement. Um, you know, we did not have citation authority or anything where we can just assess um, large fees. And this ordinance changed that by creating two separate uh, new penalties. And one specifically is for the purposes of violations where a residential unit is removed without authorization or at least four or more unauthorized units are added. Um, as you may recall, the, the kind of San Bruno case that we had here was kind of an extreme version of that where somewhere around 20 unauthorized units were added in that development. Uh, you know, we do see a decent number of residential unit removal cases, but we've only, we only see like a handful of four or more unauthorized units being added um, over time. In, in the last five years, approximately five such cases. And of course, there are varying scales of that. Um, it's important to note that this new potential penalty would only be effective or applicable to violations that actually occurred after the effective date of this ordinance, so basically after April of this year. Um, and then the penalty itself is up to it's like a one-time up to $250,000 penalty. So it's not a, not a small penalty by any means. Um, and so the concept in the ordinance was that such a penalty, when we have such a wide range of violation types and scenarios, you know, it's not a light decision. And while the planning code already has some factors that are codified for the zoning administrator that they must consider when determining if there is a violation and what kind of administrative penalties, the daily penalties, what rate to use there. It's not a comprehensive list and it doesn't weight them in any way. It doesn't kind of give a concept of like, if this happens, that warrants a higher fee or a lower fee. Um, and so that's what we're here today for is You'll see in your packet, we proposed 10 specific kind of principles and factors and criteria that the Planning Commission could adopt to provide the zoning administrator guidance in the future when having to make this determination, you know, whether or not in these situations you charge no penalty or $1,000 or $250,000 or somewhere in between. Um, and I think it would be helpful just to kind of go over each one just quickly, just to briefly read it aloud and talk about the concepts behind it. Um, and so we'll do that now with the first one simply being reinforcing that the ZA would need to consider all of the factors that are already listed in the planning code. Number two, you know, a larger number of unauthorized units being created warrants a larger penalty. Again, there's a difference between four units being added and 20 units being added. And then going the other direction, um, with number three, a larger number of residential units being removed would warrant a larger penalty. Number four is that a larger scope of overall planning code violations at the subject lot would warrant a larger penalty. So we have some cases where the only, the only violation is the removal or an addition of a unit, but sometimes there's a much larger scope too. There's been demolition, there's been other code violations, so factoring that is number four. 
Number five is that a willful or intentional violation would warrant a larger penalty. I think that kind of speaks for itself. Uh, number six, um, re repeat offense by a responsible party would warrant a larger penalty. Again, I think that's straightforward. Number seven, that a substantial financial gain to one or more of the responsible parties would result in a uh, larger penalty. Um, and I think that's especially combined with the willfulness. If, if you are willfully violating the code in order to get substantial financial gain, that's a pretty um, sound rationale for um, assessing a higher penalty. Um, number eight, greater impacts to tenants of the subject project would warrant a larger penalty. Um, you know, that language is kind of purposely general because there's lots of ways tenants can be impacted by violations, so we don't want to be too specific in there, but obviously when planning code violations are having negative impacts on real people and real people's lives, that's a, that's a big deal that we want to capture here. Um, number nine is considering the suitability of allowing payments of these penalties over time. And the rationale there, as we mentioned, if you're, there may be a situation where $250,000 is warranted, but oftentimes the work necessary to abate a violation costs money. <laughs> and we may have a scenario where on one hand, we're pushing someone to abate a violation as fast as they can, which takes money. And on the other hand, we're charging a very large penalty um, which could reduce their ability to actually pay for the work that's necessary to to abate the violation. So this is just kind of recognizing that fact that there may be some scenarios where it, it would be a better situation to charge a higher fee, but spread it out over multiple years. And then number 10 is really there. Um, it, well, the proposal is that the absence of any of the factors or criteria listed here, um, if they don't exist, that doesn't mean that the zoning administrator should assess no penalty and kind of recognizing that every scenario is kind of unique and will have its own factors. Sometimes those factors may fall outside of what we have in this criteria. And so that's just really there to clarify that um, these, that your recommendation, whatever would be adopted, would not be read to mean if you don't meet any of these factors that no penalty should be assessed. Um, so that's the proposal. Again, we recognize this is kind of a new concept. We've not had these kind of fees before, and like making these decisions has not been something um, that we've had to consider before. So we definitely appreciate that the ordinance asked the Planning Commission to kind of weigh in and think about this critically and provide this kind of guidance just to give some principles and some kind of benchmarks for the zoning administrator to consider. Um, also important to note, you know, the ordinance also created a separate fee related to historic preservation, and that was up to $500,000. And that requires the Historic Preservation Commission within a year to adopt definitions relevant to that, so definitions for demolition and significant damage, um, and then adopt the same kind of criteria for the zoning administrator for, for uh, violations that are related to qualifying historic structures. That item is going to the HPC next week. Um, so we're trying to tackle these around the same time. And then I do want you to know that once we do have action from the Planning Commission and the HPC, we will obviously be updating all of our materials, updating our website, and also conducting some level of proactive outreach to people kind of in the um, real estate and construction and development industries to make sure that they're aware. I mean, there was some of that already happening when the ordinance was going forward, but especially once we have more guidance adopted, 
um, we want to make sure we get that out there so just people have extra notice that this is a live and active situation and these, these fees could be assessed for any of these types of violations that occur going forward. So with that, we look forward to you know, getting your feedback on this and we're available for any questions you may have. That concludes your presentation. We should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this matter. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, you need to press star three or raise your hand via WebEx. Seeing no members of the public in the chambers, let's go to our remote callers. Again, through the chair, you have two minutes. Oh, hi. Good afternoon. It's uh, Georgia Shudish. Um, if you uh, read my uh, letter that I sent yesterday, uh, which uh, expressed my point of view on this matter um, and my experience with this, uh, I hope you also recognize that it included my admiration for the code enforcement team and the ZA. Uh, they're kind of analogous to uh, cleaning up a crime scene when things go wrong. And I think uh, these new uh, factors and criteria, I think that they, they sound pretty good. And I hope that the uh, commission agrees. And I think they should be uh, very helpful tools going forward uh, in the next decade. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Uh, this is Sue Hester. I reiterate my comment at the public general public comment. You need to schedule a joint meeting with the Building Inspection Commission. DBI has inspectors that go out to all the sites. They should be catching these problems. And instead of catching them, there are several commissioners, pardon me, several inspectors that have been indicted and are in prison because they uh, knowingly checked off that the project was compliance with the plans when they weren't in compliance with the plans at all. And so a public hearing between your commission and the BIC is overdue. Corey Teague has done a lot of good work to get this to you. but. People had to go around the planning department and go to the building department to yell murder because of the 20 units on San Bruno as one of the examples. But there are more than 20 units that have been illegally added or demolished. And so at some point, you're going to face the fact your permitting system is not doesn't go straight through from when it intakes at the planning department until it goes through the building department. So uh, we need it, need real attention to unitary filings and uh, paying attention to inspectors that are quote part of me corrupt. Thank you. support having the penalties for unpermitted construction. When somebody does demolition or construction beyond the scope of a permit, I think it's far better to impose penalties on the, on the responsible party than it is for the Planning Commission to reject future projects on the basis of a previous law violation or to condition approval on the creation of a confession plaque, which is what you did under uh, Commissioner Dennis Richards a few years ago. Uh, I think that the previous policy of, of constraining land use in the future 
is, is an inefficient use of land uh, and is, you know, and a penalty is much better. On the other hand, we've seen a lot of uncertain situations where we're not sure whether somebody purposely destroyed uh, the, a part of a building to build something bigger, or did the contractor just tear down a rotten wall only to replace it in like kind. So I think uh, whether there was a, a personal or financial gain should be a specific finding that the owner can contest in a court of law. Um, and as for the amount, I think the, the amounts and the policies are still a pretty vague laundry list, um, but I do like uh, Corey Teague's list of, of which ones to prioritize more. I think it's good to prioritize, prioritize more on whether there was harm to tenants and how much financial gain there was. Thank you. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing no additional request to speak, public comment is closed, and this item is now before you, Commissioners. Thank you. I'm calling Commissioner Imperial. I have a question to Mr. Teague. Um, so <coughs> Sorry. By the way, thank you for making this laundry list. Sorry, I just need water. <laughs> Don't worry, take your time. So thank you for doing this laundry list of um, looks like the you know kind of like the scope of what you know what would be amount for a large penalty. So how would you um, make this decision in terms of like are what kind of are these all of these priorities? Like do you have point system? I'm trying to understand how would you create make this kind of decision? Sure, and I think that's a really understandable question. Um, so again, this isn't determinations that we've had to make in the mm -hmm. past. I think in enforcement, the way that works right now is, you know, everything is about kind of leverage right now. There's, there's questions about how much we charge. Cost recovery is pretty straightforward, but penalties and the amount of penalties, kind of a daily penalty is, is a question of how much we think we need to pressure to apply to get the issue abated. You know, the, the purpose of these is not that. The purpose of this is to be, you know, just a straight penalty, but also a disincentive to others to do that. Mm -hmm. So you layer on top of that that every case, you know, a lot of our enforcement cases, even the ones that have nothing to do with what we're talking about here, can be very complicated, very nuanced. There's a lot of context. Um, and so the purpose of what we were kind of putting for you today is not necessarily, and we won't have behind the scenes kind of a point system or kind of like really strict sentencing guidelines kind of thing where if this, always that. We definitely want to maintain a level of discretion to really be thoughtful and contextual with each situation, but have these priorities kind of laid out. Um, and in priorities is maybe a strong word, but like principles mm -hmm. that we have in play so that the zoning administrator, whomever that may be, will understand how best to weight these criteria. Um, so I think any decision would have to be very deliberate and thoughtful mm -hmm. and we'll need to spell it out in the actual um, notice of violation because you know, if you're going to be assessing a fee of this amount, I mean, I think it's highly expected that that's going to be at least appealed and then who knows may end up, you know, in, in the court system. So part of the rationale here is to have a very kind of deliberate uh, framework so that if and when we do take this course of action, it's uh, these principles along with the, the specific details and nuances of each case will be clearly called out to support whatever that amount of fee is. 
Um, but there wouldn't be kind of a mechanical mm -hmm. system to determine what the appropriate fee would be. Yeah, thank you for that explanation, and I, agree, I do agree with you on that as well. Um, another question is the DBI role, because these are, in a way, you're catching off the, you know, what what may have happened in the DBI. So what's the role of DBI in this one, too? So in this, yeah. there's, there's really no role for DBI, mm -hmm. and it's a good point that I should raise, which is, Again, this is just planning code enforcement. You know, so DBI, they have their own enforcement. So a lot of times when we have cases that are a violation under the planning code and also a violation under the building code, property owners are getting hit twice, right? They're getting, they may be getting fees from planning, but they may also be getting fees from DBI. So the item before you today and these decisions really don't have any formal interaction with what DBI would be doing. You know, they would handle their own enforcement cases. I mean, obviously, when we're looking at a case and a violation and how it occurred, we're going to look at the full context, right? We're going to look at every relevant piece of, of, uh, of information. And so, you know, if it's a situation where it's a permit that was signed off by one agency, but not another agency, or we're trying to figure out discrepancies, I mean, we'll, we'll take all of that into consideration. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, and um, yeah, I fully agree and support this adoption. Thank you, Commissioner Braun. Thanks for bringing this forward. Um, I do have maybe three questions. Um, I guess my first one is just, since this is new to us, but I imagine other communities and large cities do have some planning uh, enforcement penalties like this. Um, did you examine, I guess the bigger, bigger question for me really is just, how, what was the process for developing these criteria and did we look at other communities that already have something like this and seen how it works or anything like that? So that's kind of going back to the original ordinance when that structure was put in place. Um, and I'm honestly, I'm not sure if the sponsor, you know, did that level of research. Um, I believe there was, you know, some comparisons with jurisdictions in the, like the greater Bay Area. Um, I'm not aware personally of this type of significant fee for these types of violations being part of the enforcement program in other, other jurisdictions. I think a lot of jurisdictions are similar to what our enforcement program is now, which is, is identifying a violation and using fees as a tool of leverage to get you to comply. Um, not necessarily hitting just a you know, a one-time fee. Um, but, you know, I don't have that information directly myself in terms of any research into other agencies in the area of the state um, and whether or not they have fees like this. Okay. I would say if we, I'm comfortable with the criteria that are already described here, but if we find that they're not working or that we need to modify them, I mean, not a lot of these cases come forward, so it might take a long time to get a track record. But if we do find that, uh, then certainly if we revisit it, I'd like to maybe examine what other communities do as part of a similar process. And they don't have to be Bay Area communities. We can look further afield. Um, my other question is, okay, so we have this $250,000 max uh, penalty. Under these criteria that are outlined here, do you, would you envision that any of the enforcement cases we've had would trigger the full $250,000 max um, amount? And I know, and I'm not taking this as, you know, a certainty. I'm just kind of asking you to opine here, but 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 
you know, I we've had some pretty egregious egregious examples. I think San Bruno was one, and so I'm sort of wondering if we are actually going to ever use the maximum two hundred fifty thousand dollar amount, or if even a case like that might be lower. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't want to speculate because I haven't kind of gone through any process, real deliberate process on any of those past cases to determine. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, San Bruno is obviously a very egregious case in terms of number of units added and impacts to tenants, et cetera. So, I mean, I think that's clearly kind of a shining example of of what could happen out there and kind of was part of the impetus for the, the legislation to begin with. Um, and going forward, whether or not there will be, I mean, if we don't have hardly any cases like this ever come up, then that I think is successful because <laughs> this is intended to be a disincentive um, first and foremost. Um, I do. I mean, I think the main thing I would say is that I think you can probably tell from you know the presentations we did earlier in the year on the on the ordinance and today. Like, don't take this lightly. I don't think we're just going to be throwing out max fines to every single violation. I think it's going to be a very measured and deliberate. Um, process for each case. Okay, I appreciate that. I would just say we have probably had some cases already that should be the maximum <laughs> penalty yes. amount. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, my last comment is just, uh, you know, I'm trying to think through what sort of the findings would be to justify certain penalty levels, and I, I can see some pretty objective um, aspects as this. I guess the ones that have me a little more concerned are willful and intentional and substantial financial gain. I think substantial financial gain might be somewhat tricky to prove, but um, do you have any thoughts on on the evidence that would support those if we did have to support them? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the code doesn't require like specific findings to be made, you know, and this isn't kind of a legal proceeding, so like there aren't kind of rules of evidence. Um, but again, that's part of the reason why I feel like having this is here. But anytime the zoning administrator issues a violation and or fees that are of a certain amount due to certain factors, the onus is on us to, you know, to prove that case, right? We are, um, we are making those assertions. And to your point, we would want to make sure that we had very clear documentation to point to one or more factors as to a rationale for it being higher. So, um, again, I can't speak for future zoning administrators. I know in my um, situation, because this comes up in enforcement cases now, right, in terms of certain knowledge, do we know this or do we know that? And sometimes we may have a hunch. We may say if I were a betting person, I would think this person knew what was happening. But do we have, like, clear documentation of that? We might not. And so what I can say is I think for these types of situations, Again, we're going to be very measured and careful um, and make sure that if we are using one of these factors f to justify a higher fee, that we feel very certain in that information. Okay. Yeah, as long as we have the justification. And, and certainly, it would be rare for only one or two of these factors to be triggered. So <laughs> we have pretty good coverage. Thank you so much. Sure. Great. Commissioner Koppel? Would the San Bruno case warrant the maximum penalty? Well, again, I'm, I'm not going to speculate on an actual penalty for a case that we haven't had adopted criteria yet. Um, I mean, I would restate that it was a very egregious situation. 
And that's because the DBI issues and the planning issues overlapped, correct? I mean, based on the criteria we've proposed in front of you, it would, it would check a lot of boxes. Yeah, so yeah. Yes. And, and this is just the, the one, the <laughs> one we know about, right? Yeah. 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 So, and well, there's, like I said, we have a handful of other cases over the last several years that are in that, in that category. Maybe not the same scale, but in the Just same a handful? <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, you have literally convicted, indicted, convicted inspectors, engineers, and alleged developers. Are you going to start, like, tracing the steps at some point? Are you going to, I mean, like, is someone going to go look at all the projects Bernie Curran signed off on? Yeah, yes. I mean, the short answer is the city is taking steps to make sure that that type of work is followed up on. Okay. Just to build on that before I call in Commissioner Diamond, even if that were to happen, is it the date that the violation is noticed and, and we are kind of saying you violated the law or is it the date the violation occurred? So, for example, if it was a project where the violation occurred five years ago, but we are notified you know, after today, mm -hmm. after we have these criteria that the violation occurred, is it the notice of our violation to that person or when the violation we believe it occurred? That's a good question. Um, it's when it occurred. It's not just when we're catching it. So in that scenario, if it, if you, you know. Well, sorry, just to say, even if we did a look back, you're saying we couldn't apply this Correct. law to that? Correct. We right. can't apply it retroactively. Even if today someone files a complaint about units that were added but they were clearly added two years ago um the language of the ordinance was meant to be very purposely not retroactive in that way but forward looking for when the violations occurred right so notwithstanding that someone should be doing that investigative work that it wouldn't we wouldn't expect to see these 250 dollar penalties or five thousand dollars for san bruno in part because it's in the past? Correct. Yeah, the San Bruno scenario, that case specifically, like this would not apply. Um, you know, assuming they don't, there's no future violations, but not the old violation that we're aware of. Well, we never know what the future may hold, so with that project in particular. Commissioner Diamond? Who makes, is it the ZA by herself or himself that makes the decision on the penalty and is it appealable to some other entity? So yes, it, this is um, a decision by the zoning administrator um, and because it is a single person making this decision is one of the reason we built this in to provide input from the commission as well. Um, but, you're, but the reason I've been saying we'd be very measured, very deliberate, we want these criteria is because it is a single person making this call. Um, and it's not a light call to make. To your other question, if it is appealable to the Board of Appeals, you may remember the discussion that we had with the ordinance because there's a limitation. Um, if the ZA issues a penalty for this type of violation of more than $50,000, the Board of Appeals cannot reduce it to less than $50,000, right? But for example, if, I, if, you know, if we issued, if I assessed the penalty of the full 250 on someone, they could appeal and request the Board of Appeals to bring it down to as low as 50,000. Of course, if the penalty we assess for these types of violations, say we only assess 45,000, that can't be reduced by the Board of Appeals. Okay, so I, I think these criteria are important and will be very useful to you or your successors in making this decision. But I'm anxious about um, 
how we ensure there's consistency uh, in how these criteria are applied, uh, especially if the ZA alone is making the decision. How do we, you know, um, avoid people saying, oh, you know, they were favored in this case, and so the penalty was a lot lower as opposed to this case? I, I feel like it's important mm -hmm. that there's some um, review on an annual basis by the ZA of past decisions, um, just to make sure that, you know, the ZA is constantly making, you know, testing himself or herself to make sure that you really are trying to be as consistent as possible. You know, no two cases are alike, I get that, um, but you want to protect yourself from challenges, um, favoritism sure. or, you know, undue harshness. Mm -hmm. A hundred percent, and we don't have it as a proposal here, but it was definitely our plan to keep like a database, like a separate tracking for this, for a variety of purposes, but for that exact purpose. Um, one of the reasons we wanted this um, set of factors and criteria is to help protect, you know, the zoning administrator yeah. in the future, because you may not even, it may not be purposeful, right? You, we could be 15 years down the road, and whomever is in that position at that time could make a reasonable decision based on the criteria or based on the facts of the case then, but a similar case 10 years before had a wildly different outcome for no reasons that are, you know, purposeful. But if we have these type of criteria and we maintain a tracking, so we have benchmarks and we understand what we're doing, the, the goal is to maintain awareness of that long-term. Yeah, I mean, as Commissioner Brown pointed out, these are highly subjective criteria, mm -hmm. um, and therefore it is really important to be constantly reviewing the database and making mm -hmm. sure that, you know, you're not getting out of line um, mm -hmm. with what prior ZA's decisions have been on the same subject. Sure. No, that, that makes total sense. And again, just to reiterate, like the, I feel like these principles are straightforward in terms of the, what they're saying. Um, I think it would be wise of me or any future ZA that if we're going to say this is a higher fee because you were aware it was a willing, a willful violation, it's going to be on us to be able to provide documentation that it shows that it was a willful violation. I just have two, uh, maybe three comments. One is um, for criteria six, where it says it's a repeat offense by a responsible party, is that that it's the responsible party offense of the same property or that it could be over multiple properties you can take into account that this particular party continues to you know have violations across their properties yeah i mean it was left more general for that purpose that it could be across multiple properties and not just a single okay. property it could be either one great so i for number eight just kind of going along a little bit with the commissioner i was saying just to make sure we have things covered i think question number eight is detrimental impacts and I, I would like to see it include current or past tenants because just because we have the violation noted and occurred at this date, if past tenants had um, some challenges because of it, as well as those who may be occupying the property at the time, I think that probably is the intent, but just maybe to make it specific to say that. Um, and then I wonder if it's worth to add a number 11, not that you need like more things in this list, but to Commissioner Dimas' point around like, Maybe it's that you, you're taking into account penalties assessed in like cases so that there is that ongoing building of what has happened in other similar cases that we are saying we're going to we're going to look at uh, when we're making well we you whoever the ZA is at the time is going to make that determination. So those are my two suggestions. Sure. And on the tenant question, we purposely didn't put current tenants so they can be all tenants. But if we okay. want to be more explicit 
to say. I just want to. I more want to make sure it can include past. That's yes. actually because I, I think where the way it reads right now, it's, it's to me signaled current. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure that it, there could be past tenants who knows when right. where they're being affected by the violation. Sure, so. and I think our intent was to include that and that to have that be read that way. I mean, obviously, prior tenants. It, the more prior it gets, the harder it is to be able to document that there were impacts and what happened. So I think that gets more challenging to use as a criteria. But a lot of times these are situations, especially if it's unit removal, there might be very immediate past tenants mm-hmm. that are, exactly, not, yeah. there are no, there's, there's no more unit there. There's no current tenants. So there's a wide gamut there. And again, I think the way we drafted it was intentionally to be broad okay well if that's the intent i think that i support that as long as it's reaching backward and forward so um those are my comments um but otherwise it's certainly a interesting program it is unfortunate that it is not retroactive i I think i understand why um in the legal kind of landscape it's not really possible to do hopefully it does have the detriment the effect of deterring uh future violations from occurring um, and certainly gives us a new tool to address those if and when they do occur. But, you know, our hope is that it has the deterring effect um, on the building community. Um, any, any other comments, questions, or proposed adjustments to this list? Are we motioning to approve it? What are I'll we doing a, today, folks? I can what make a motion. Great. Commissioner Brown? Uh, so I'm going to move to approve. Uh, I do have a question. Did you want to still modify the eighth item to specifically say detrimental impacts to tenants? I mean, I assume we wouldn't penalize them for positive impacts that they somehow <laughs> have on to tenants. You mentioned um, detrimental, so I just want to check. Yeah. Well, I was just, I was more thinking about, and I'm not a lawyer, like, do we need to be more, the, the balance between being vague and specific in terms of these these points being challenged. And that's where I even was thinking about saying specifically that it does include past tenants. Is that better for us to be specific? It's current and past tenants that are included. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I, Mr. Teague seemed to feel like it was okay to have it be more broad. So I was satisfied, but. Okay, in that case, I moved to approve with the addition of an item 11 specifying one of the criteria put, uh, to be considered penalty amounts assessed in past cases or past penalty amounts, something along those lines. I think you can work on the Do you mind if I just put in the record maybe a suggestion there, which is, and if you don't mind, since the number 10 right now references all the previous ones, it might be nice just to, if the motion is to add this one, add this one kind of as a new number 10, you know, move 10 to number 11, and the new criteria for consideration are penalty amounts assessed for past cases pursuant to section 176 C1, C1, which is... So these types of, obviously, we don't want the language to look at all past, but just these. So the language would be, again, for the new number 10, penalty amounts assessed for past cases pursuant to this section. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, yeah, move to approve with that edit. Second. Second. There's nothing further, commissioners. There's a motion that has been seconded to adopt the uh, resolution for, with factors and criteria, adding a new number item 10 for penalty amounts for past cases pursuant to the code section read into the record by the zoning administrator. On that motion, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously six to zero. And we'll place this on item 20 for case number 2022-005146 CUA. 
for the property at 129 Laidley Street. This is a conditional use authorization. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Matthew Chandler, Planning Department staff. The project before you includes the demolition of an existing two-bedroom single-family building and the new construction of a four-story, 25-foot, seven-inch tall, two-unit building totaling 4,628 square feet of gross floor area within the RH1 zoning district, 40X height and bulk district, and the central neighborhood's large residence special use district. The new building will include a 3,720 square foot, three bedroom dwelling unit, and a 908 square foot, two bedroom ADU or accessory dwelling unit through the state uh, law. For the project to proceed, the commission must grant conditional use authorization pursuant to planning code sections 249.92 and 317 to allow the demolition of the single family home and the development of a residential building with a dwelling unit exceeding a 1 to 1.2 floor area ratio as well as exceeding 3,000 square feet of gross floor area. This project was continued from the October 19th Planning Commission hearing at the sponsor's request. The project sponsor has since updated the plans with additional details to enhance clarity and address concerns raised by some of the neighbors. These updated plans are the ones that are included within the staff report today. To date, the department has received 15 letters in opposition and five letters of support of the project. The opposition is centered on the accuracy of the plans, limited ability for public feedback, and compliance with the residential design guidelines and the ability to meet the required conditional use authorization findings. Specifically, the opposition notes that the project size will impact the mid-block open space and compromise the privacy of neighbors. The letters of support emphasize its positive attributes, specifically its contribution to housing and thoughtful design um, that avoids negative impacts on the surrounding properties. Two initially opposing neighbors changed their position after meeting with the project sponsor after the continuance and reviewing the project details. The existing single family home has been tenant occupied since November of 2021 by tenants who are not low income. The tenant submitted written confirmation that they are aware of the project and that they and the property owners have worked on a relocation plan that is beneficial to both parties. The department finds that the project is on balance, consistent with the objectives and policies of the general plan and recommends approval with the conditions as outlined in the staff report. The proposed project is, code, is a co-compliant two-unit building, and it will create one additional family-sized unit and provide a net increase of one dwelling unit to the city's housing stock. The department also finds that the project to be necessary, desirable, and compatible with the surrounding neighborhood and not to be detrimental to persons or adjacent properties in the vicinity. That concludes my presentation. I am available to answer any questions. Thank you. Very good. We should hear from the project sponsor. You have five minutes. Hello, commissioners. I am Emily. I'm a multi-generation San Franciscan, and this is my husband, Brendan. Uh, we found our dream home in 129 Laidley in 2019, and we lived in this home until COVID. Uh, we were then thrilled to find out that we were pregnant with our first son, Griffin, and we decided that the open spiral staircase wasn't practical with a newborn. 
We didn't think it benefited the city to leave the space open and vacant, so we rented to Cat, uh, who we mentioned is a high-income uh, tenant, in, no in November 2021. We were upfront with our intentions that we wanted to build a new home, and she communicated that uh, in an email to the um, commission. Uh, thank you for your time. I'm going to pass it to our architect, Jeff. Hi, commissioners. I'm Jeff Gibson from Winder Gibson Architects. Um, I think, as you understand, the project before you is full demolition of an existing single-family home and replacement with a family-sized single-family home with a two-bedroom ADU. <coughs> Uh, as a two-unit, a new two-unit project, uh, we understand that the Housing Accountability Act does apply here and that to the extent possible when we discuss the residential design guidelines today, I'd like to try to focus on the objective standards and avoid subjective ones where possible. Um, the project has been extensively reviewed for compliance with all codes, including the new special use district. Planning staff architects reviewed it uh, multiple times, had great feedback. We integrated that against the residential design guidelines and found the project to be objectively in full compliance. Um, as you know, it, it takes space to make new housing. The massing proposed has been determined to be suitable for this family-sized home with the ADU in relation to the context and to the city's housing goals. We designed this building in the spirit of all the homes on the side of Laidley Street. It terraces down with the slope. Massing where it does project beyond neighbors is always set five feet off of a shared property line. All homes in this area enjoy abundant terraces, and our terraces are always set five feet off of shared property lines to ensure a reasonable level of privacy, as is precedent on similar projects. Um, the CUA for the demo that we're seeking is really primarily because of the soil quality. We always assess that and the existing structure at the outset. Laidley is one of those streets where they just threw the slough over the side as they graded the road, and it's it, absolutely terrible soil quality in the front portion of the lot. So retrofitting the building wasn't terribly reasonable. Uh, the existing um, home valued at $2.4 million is clearly not affordable, so we felt like replacing it with a good home and including a two-bedroom ADU would actually improve sort of the affordable by design housing stock on the site. And then the second CUA is um, for the central neighborhood's large residence SUD. Um, that's because our building is in excess of 3,000 square feet of gross floor area. It was really interesting to listen through the whole conversation earlier in the hearing around floor area and gross floor area. Uh, it's really one of the challenges with this legislation since our GFA is actually is 3,700 square feet, but that number is kind of deceiving because it includes a garage, a covered walkway, and unconditioned store, storage area. Really, there's about 2,200 square feet of actual living space. You can see that in A0.50A in our drawing set if you want to take a look. And then we think that's a reasonable size. Next door, the approved permit at 125 Laidley is actually 4,700 square feet gross, 4,100 square feet livable on the other side of us, 131 Laidley is 3,400 square feet per their rent, recent uh, rental listing. Some other nearby homes are 5,300, 4,000, 3,300. So we think that we're providing a, a contextual home when you think apples to apples, habitable to habitable, and um, we think that this sort of project abides by the goals of this new special use district. Great, and uh, to close a minute on our neighbors. So Kim and Steve at 125 Laidley are approved for a 4,700 square foot single family home. We did not oppose their project, which, which extends 19 feet beyond our current back wall with nine side-facing windows. And we even offered support, which they declined. We shared our plans in April 2022. Neither side neighbor took us up on our offer to meet, nor raised issues. Kim actually emailed back, house looks great. So we were very surprised and disappointed to learn two months ago that they had been complaining directly to the planning department since November of 2022. 
They did not include us or communicate any concerns to us in any way until September 2023. Steve, a former real estate developer and investor, knows how to be a tough neighbor. Beyond working behind our back to influence our home, Steve aggressively organized neighbors. Fortunately, some were appalled and forwarded those emails. We documented clear errors in what he represented. With our side neighbors, we hosted calls. On the first, Steve said, your entire top floor is a non-starter. The second included Sean, the owner on the other side. We asked Sean, who now lives in Hawaii, why they also had not shared any objections. He said they didn't want to be the bad guy. They wanted the city to do that. So Steve is here today. He's a former public company CEO, so he will be very well-spoken. However, their actions speak louder. Both side neighbors withheld feedback. Steve and Kim actively tried to subvert our process, and Steve and Kim with their approved plan Thank for you, sir. That is your time, but I'm sure the commissioners may have... Well, Thank you. I said I shouldn't say I'm sure, but they may have follow-up questions. Um, with that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. Through the chair, you'll each get two minutes. Hello, commissioners, Chairperson Tanner. Uh, my name is Steve Richardson. My wife and I are the homeowners at 125 Laley Street. Uh, we've both been engaged with Civic Life in San Francisco for a long time, serving as a board member of the Gladstone Foundation and Bridge Housing as well. So absolutely, uh, appreciate the situation that the city is in right now. Uh, we're fully supportive of projects in our neighborhood. We would be very fully supportive of this project with some reasonable changes that respect the planning code and the residential design guidelines. Unfortunately, there are four key issues where they clearly do violate those in our view, and those are objective standards. These are not subjective. The 3,700 square feet is well beyond the 120% uh, criteria, as well as the 3,000 square foot criteria. The lot size is 25 by 100. They mentioned our project next door. We have a lot and a half. So we're at about 120% as well. The conditional use authorization, we believe has been utilized improperly. The planning code section 249.92F1 states the project meets applicable resident, residential design guidelines. It does not. The strong mid-block open space pattern, there are actually images in the residential design guideline that call this out. This is a treasured part of Laidley Street. We have serious privacy concerns. There are 12 foot high by 12 foot wide windows that if that were the wall and this were our master bedroom, they would look entirely into our bedroom. The decks are oversized compared to all the neighbors and look into other people's homes as well. Finally, it's important to note that the proposed project, as they noted, is 4,600 plus square feet. That's 185% lot coverage. Thank you, sir. That is your time. Okay. At that time, sir, they... that is your time. Thank you. Thank you. Last call for public comment. If you're in the chambers, please come forward. If you're calling in remotely, I apologize. There are two remote callers. Let's go to them. Mr. Hahn, you've been unmuted. Mr. Hahn. 
All right, let's go to Mr. Seymour. Mr. Seymour. Are you there? Hello? There you go. Yes. yes. Can you go. hear me? Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, um, okay. So sorry. Um, thank you for hearing my comment. My name is John Seymour, uh, the owner of 131 Lately, which is adjacent to 129. Um, my wife and I strongly oppose the current plans for 129. Um, we agree with uh, virtually all you have or will hear from our fellow opposing neighbors, which frankly is everybody surrounding this property, at least the two buildings on either side of it and the buildings downhill and also the building uphill. Um, we wish to particularly highlight the privacy violation of this project to our house on 131 Lately. Um, in an email to the secretary of this group, I presented figures that indicate the visible percentage of all three of our floors in our home is likely to be 50% or more from several vantage points on this project. This includes our main living area, master bedroom, and two children's bedrooms. While I cannot tell you the exact amount by floor, I believe it is large enough that this project would not have been judged as passing the requirements of reasonable privacy impacts had this had been considered fully. We have asked that this be analyzed and addressed, but the project sponsors have re repeatedly refused to even acknowledge that there is an issue. They have not offered us a single concession. We do not expect zero privacy impact, but the impact on our privacy should be no more than the privacy impact of the Roberts in 139 that we have. From our 10-foot pop-out deck past their home, we can see roughly six to eight feet of depth into their picture windows. The analogous impact on us from this project would be fair and reasonable, and we have no expectation of privacy in our 10-foot forward pop-out window, but we do very much expect privacy deep into our living space bedrooms and most certainly our children's bedrooms. This must be protected for whoever lives in our home. We presently do not live in the house, as the sponsors have pointed out. It is our house and we may return. It's frankly irrelevant if we do. Not in, <clears throat> in not many years, few of those involved in this disagreement will occupy the houses in question. We believe the open mid-block pattern that we enjoyed much so much when we lived in 131 lately should be protected for all future residents and not be forever lost to the momentary selfishness of one party. We are simply asking to limit the depth of 129 development to the same as ours. I believe the Richardsons in 125 on the side of 129 have also said that a project of equal depth to Thank their Thank you, sir. That is your time. One more chance, Mr. Hahn. Mr. Hahn, do you care to submit your comment? Can you hear me? I can, but you need to mute your television or your computer. Otherwise, we're going to get the feedback. Okay, go ahead, sir. To the residential design guidelines per hour detail. Sir, you need to mute your computer. Used to exceed 3,000 square feet for the dwelling required. Okay, Mr. Hahn, I'm going to give you one more chance to mute your computer now, and we're going to unmute you. I'm David Hahn, architect for 125 Lately. Uh, the sponsor's Exhibit B design remains unchanged since before the continuance. It remains non compliant with core components of the residential design guidelines per hour handout. The conditional use to exceed 3,000 for the dwelling requires compliance with the guidelines in finding one. From 26 of the guidelines, page 26, it says, even when permitted by a code, building expansions in the rear yard may not be appropriate if they are uncharacteristically deep or tall. 
depending on the context of the other buildings that define the mid-block. In the absence of a calculation of the mid-block open space or average rear yard, this proposal visibly interrupts mid-block, especially the immediate mid-block. The home stack above the ADU, which is for the home and not the ADU, extends to within 30 feet of the rear lot line. There are scarce examples on the block of this depth of the rear yard. <clears throat> the sponsors could have uh, proposed a state ADU that was also sensitive to the mid-block, but they have chosen not to. They could have included modifications in the Exhibit B to address the depth and height and neighbor privacy um, and light guide, um, issues per the guidelines, but they have not done so. They have offered to remove the side-facing windows, which is a good first step. So depth and height of the proposal should reduce to reinforce and the open mid-block context and to comply otherwise with the neighbor privacy and light issues as required in the guidelines. Thank you. Okay, oh, we have one more. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay, hi. Um, my name is Kim Richardson. My husband, Steve, and I are the homeowners at 125 Laveley Street. San Francisco is important to me and our neighborhood is a wonderful part of the city. With the interesting architecture and an overall charm that is in a large part due to the design of the area, particularly its mid-block open space pattern. This open space creates a sense of community and connection with our neighbors and with nature. We understand this open space pattern is not just a haphazard result of development over time, but a carefully considered urban design and one explicitly required for new projects, both in the planning code and in the neighborhood design guidelines. Nearly all homes abide by this requirement, including the home at 159 Lakeview Street that is now under construction and designed by the same architect as 129. 129, however, is a 4,628 square foot structure far exceeding the 3,000 square foot minimum in this neighborhood. This is a terrible precedent and for this factor alone should require a significant revision to their plan. Another very serious concern is the design of the top floor of the project, which features a massive 13 foot by 12 foot wide side facing window that looks directly into our entire master bedroom and living area. Let me repeat, this massive window wall is nearly 13 feet high by 12 feet wide. The first on this invasion of privacy is an oversized 15 by 15 outdoor deck that is not set back whatsoever from the structure and also looks directly into our master bedroom. The planning code and the neighborhood design guidelines are crucial to maintaining our community. We should not allow a project of this size to destroy the treasured mid-block open space and violate the privacy of the entire neighborhood. Please require the architect and owners to revise their design that respect these common sense codes and thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, last call for public comment on this item. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. Thank you for the presentation um, and the comments uh, that we received. I just want to have staff address, we heard quite a few um, comments about the residential design guidelines, but as I was reviewing the staff report, I think there's a pretty thorough analysis of how it did meet the guidelines. Could you just elaborate a little bit on, on that? 
Sure, thank you. Um, so yeah, as part of the, the review process, of course, I reviewed this with the appropriate staff for compliance with the residential design guidelines. Uh, staff was uh, pretty supportive of the project and we felt that it met the residential design guidelines um, due to the unique slope of the lot, how it's you know very downsloping lot. Um, the building actually has a maximum of two stories at the front, so 25 feet, seven inches tall, which is well within the height limit that is allowed. Um, and then it kind of articulates the massing to go downwards with the slope um, for an entire max of four stories at the rear, where again, it is heavily downsloped. And also the massing is articulated to provide um, side setbacks from the two adjacent neighbors. Um, and of course, it leaves the required uh, required rear yard open as well, which would be 30 feet for this 100 foot uh, deep lot. Great, thank you very much. And Commissioner Tanner, if I can just add yeah. on to that as well, um, especially as we're having conversations more and more around objective design standards, which are not the current um, tool that we have, but one of the principles that we've been really starting to develop and that I'm sure you hear Mr. Winslow talk about particularly in DRs every week um, when we talk about rear yard open space and sort of what amount of a rear addition is appropriate um, because typically, again, these are all code compliant, so they're all um, that sort of a baseline. It's usually a sort of 45 degree angle from the rear wall of the adjacent neighbors, particularly where um, they have limited punched openings or sort of from that center point. And, you know, do they maintain that sort of 45 degree degree angle view view corridor into the mid-block open space. And when reviewing this project against that standard, it's well within that. So I just wanted to add that addi additional piece of context as it relates to our um, design guideline analysis. Great, thank you. Are there any other comments, questions, or motions from commissioners? Commissioner Diamond? Move to approve. Second. There's no further deliberation, commissioners. There is a motion that has been seconded to approve with conditions on that motion. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 6 to 0. Commissioners, that'll place us under your discretionary review calendar for the final item on your agenda today, number 21, case number 2022-007060-DRP at 10 Seacliffe. Good afternoon, commissioners. David Winslow, staff architect. The item before you is a public-initiated request for uh, discretionary review of building permit application 2022-0621-6738 to construct a horizontal rear addition on the second floor new decks on all three floors at the rear and a new sunroom on the third floor, as well as adding a new raised roof to a three-story over basement single-family home. And I am happy to announce, as I understand, that the DR requester and the project sponsor have reached an agreement that they would like to have memorialized uh, through the DR process. And with that, I'll just simply turn it over to them if you don't mind. Thank you. Given that there's an agreement, do we want to have the DR requester go first or the project sponsor? I believe the DR requester is on. Here. You're here. Okay. Oh, Sorry, I didn't recognize you. Is here. Sure. So you can put that into the, the thumb drive. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Thanks. So proceed. Yeah. Okay. Put it in there. And, let's, and if you need it, I have the hard copy that was sent to me earlier today. 
here with me. screen sfgov can we go to the computer please pardon talking to sfgov yes sure um the this is the subject of the dr is primarily sorry sir if you can use the microphone it'll be easier for Excuse us to me, hear I'm you sorry. yeah no it's worries no worries so the the primary aspect of this DR has been this rear terrace at the second floor and the original design, the terrace went all the way to the right-hand side, affording kind of a direct view into the uh, side window of the DR requester's home. And so in, um, we proposed the solution to create a planter that pushes the, the viewer well away from the, uh, the corner and, um, and creating a hard separation between the planter and the terrace. And that's been that's the basis of the resolution. Great. Did the DR requester want to make any comments in addition? Yeah. Look, I, I think the main thing was um, uh, privacy and trying to restrict some of the viewpoints into um, the blue window. I think you see there as a um, as into the bedroom and into the closet and bedroom, um, and uh, wanted to try and maintain as uh, little visibility and. And I think with the planters, with the clear separation, as well as with the potted plants, um, that starts to restrict it. I think it's with, within the principles that um, we talked about in mediation. Great. Thank you all for working so collaboratively together. Should we take public comment? We should. Is there any public comment? Seeing none, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, commissioners. Great. I think we need a motion to take DR and approve with modifications. If there is such a motion, Commissioner Koppel. So moved. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to take DR and approve with modifications as displayed um, uh, on the screen, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner. Aye. So moved, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero and concludes your hearing today. Excellent. Thank you all for being here for a great hearing. We are adjourned. <laughs> <laughs>